limited to joining this of action. We are still in a process of consultation with our own legal services in that regard and we'll take that consultation forward. So that matter of Parliament of this committee joining remains on the table. Secondly, as explained the last time, in terms of our own outlook parliamentary process, the sub rule doesn't apply. It will be our discretion here how we choose to take this matter forward. But we believe in the we believe in the uh, our the alternate pattern. So we want to hear everyone. So this is not a an adjudication on our part. We want to hear you. Your position, the whole nine yards. Safe to say that we must still be convinced that going to court was the last resort, having exhausted all other avenues. We're not convinced that you've exhausted all avenues. And so the whole court action thing in our is a very drastic step. And it's just the precedent that it sets that worries us. And we still need to understand the reasons why court and that dispute thereof. So that's why we're here. It's a family meeting uh, of sorts. So what we'll do is we'll start with AG politics. Take us through, because AG has tabled, right? AG has tabled to parliament. So Tina, this side, we are in receipt and in possession of AG's report. Uh, and it works. Then we'll go to uh, National Treasury, right? Honorable Adam. No, no, thanks, Chair. I wanted to check it. Um, should it be started with the wrong call? Oh, no, yeah. going to that I was just. Oh, okay. Because yeah. uh, I don't see the department. Okay. I have not received Executive authority, yeah. All right, thanks. Yeah. Okay, now we'll do intros and see who's here. So we're going to go to but we had Raf last time. Uh, Raf uh, took us through these issues which we can discuss and deal with, which are not in dispute. But also maybe the rationale is we want to deal with this piecemeal. So those are all the considerations we have. We've got a very open mind. Uh, but we need to be convinced about this drastic step and the floodgates that it opens for all of us. Right. So, Mrs. Uh, Toby, are there any apologies? <clears throat> Not from members. Uh, so, Mom Zibula is indisposed and dealing with a family matter. I think we all share. Yeah. No other apologies. All right. Let's take introductions. So, I almost said who's who in the Zoom. Uh, we're not used to physical meetings. It's been a long time, so we're still adjusting. Um, we'll start here and go that way, and then you will introduce yourselves from this mic when they are done. Over to you, sir. Uh, Honorable Chairperson, Honorable Members, I'm Benay Rambali from the Auditor General. Good morning, Honorable Chairperson, Honorable Members. My name is Mukwana Nicholas from Auditor General. Good morning, Honorable Chair and Honorable Members. My name is Tamilisha Nsibi 
um, the chair of the RAF board. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. I'm Elmi Daniels. I chair the Audit Committee of the Road Accident Fund. Thank you. Um, good morning, Honourable Members and other colleagues in the room. I'm Sibongile Lubambo, the Head of Portfolio from the Auditor General. I'm leading the team from HSA. Thanks. Uh, morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. My name is Matiji Malosingo and I'm from the AG as well. Thank you. Morning, Chair and Honourable Members. Um, my name is Atengosi Stoto and I'm from the Auditor General. Morning, Morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. I'm Bosa Masebo from SIU. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. I'm Gloria Maria, the Acting Accountant General, National Treasury. Good morning, Honourable Chair. My name is Collins Lizard, the CEO of the Road Accident Fund. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. My name is Ranzo Mashava, Acting DG, Department of Transport. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. My name is Mande Kumalo, and I'm the Chief Governance Officer at Trans. Good morning, Honourable Members and Honourable Chair. I'm a Parliamentary Licensing Officer from Office of the Minister. Thank you, Mbondo. Morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. I'm Sonny from Road Accident Fund. Morning, Chair. I'm Fiki Swafigeni from the Road Accident Fund. Thank you. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. My name is Bernice Potrider. I'm the CFI of RAF. Um, morning, Chairperson. Morning, Honourable Members. Johannes Makhat is my name. I'm with the National Department of Transport. Morning, Chair. Uh, morning. Please don't say you with. Rather tell us what you are there. Um, I'm the Chief Director of Transport Regulation in the National Department of Transport. My apologies. Thanks, Chairperson. Uh, morning, Chair. Morning, Honourable Members. Uh, Bosa Ramansi, DG Rep in the Board of the Road Incident Fund. Thanks. Good morning, Chair. Good morning, Honourable Members. My name is Dr. Nomondia Mulwele. I'm the Deputy Chairperson of the Road Incident Fund. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. My name is Anel Lorraine Fraser. I'm a member of the RAF Board. Good morning, Chair. Good morning, Honourable Members. My name is Moses Nyama. I'm also a board member at Road Accident Fund. Thank you. Morning, Chair. Good morning, Honourable Members. Uh, my name is Khodzo Mutubi, also a board member of RAF. Thank you. Chairperson. <laughs> Thank you, Chair. Good morning, Chair. Good morning, Honorable Members and Honorable Chair. My name is Tamsan. Actually, I'm the acting board secretary at the Road Accident Fund. Thank you, Chair. There's been a reshuffle. Yeah. <laughs> hey, morning, Chair. Hey, morning, Members. Hey, I'm Patichezo Kwarini. I'm the chief. Uh, a strategy and transformation of his the road extent fund. Thanks. 
Good morning, Chair and Honourable Members. My name is Mpo Manyasha. I'm responsible for stakeholder relations in the office of the CEO, Rolex and Fund. Good morning, Chair and Members. My name is Sifotla Mutiba. I'm the Acting Chief Investment Officer for the Rolex and Fund. Thanks. Gentlemen. Morning, Chair and Members. My name is Tulan Chabalana. I'm the Provost Board. Good morning, Chair and Members. I'm Khomeini Siobhan, Admin Officer in the Office of the DG. Right. This is Gopa. Um, <laughs> right, thank you very much. Um, so it's quite clear. I counted some 16 people from REF, if I'm not mistaken, um, in different forms, boards, executives. Um, eight years, about five. So you really know why we're here and who's always brought us here. All right. <laughs> So I think we've got a broad spectrum of everyone and everything. And system tells me online we have the accounting standard board. They are online. They have trained us uh, online. All right. So, colleagues, let's hear from the AG uh, first. Uh, and then we will hear from National Treasury Accountant General um, and then the Accounting Standard Board. And then we'll take it from there. AG, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Chairperson, and uh, good morning, honourable members again. So we, we did spend time with the committee a few months ago, um, briefing on the audit outcomes of REF. What we'll be doing today, I think it's two things, uh, Chair. So we will take you through the briefing document um, at, at a high level, just to, to ensure that um, we refresh what we said in the last session. But the second thing that we'd like to, to put on the table for honorable members is to also um, deal with the audit process that was followed um, in getting us to finalize the audit. Because I do understand that that's part of what came up in the, in the last session so that we close that. And, and I think we, we move from the same basis to an extent that that's possible. Chairperson. So I think that those are the two things that we would like to, to achieve. And if there are questions on things that you would like us to clarify as the committee and we have not covered it, um, we, we should be in a position to, to deal with it. Uh, so I'll hand over to Madi to start and then Dine will take you us through the document that is being flighted on the screen. Thank you so much, Chair. Thank you, Juan. Uh, morning, Chair, and uh, morning to the honorable members again. Um, I think as, as Spongine has indicated, um, we have briefed uh, the committee previously uh, on the audit outcomes of RAP. 
Um, and, and when we did that uh, previously, we did indicate that the audit process of RAF was finalized towards the latter part of last year um, in December. Um, and that was due to uh, a change in accounting policy, which uh, resulted in us going through a formal uh, dispute process. Safe to say that um, we did finalize the audit report. Um, and when we finalized the audit report, our conclusion was that we had a disclaimer of an audit opinion, um, which was accompanied as well with uh, material findings on, on compliance with legislation. Um, and maybe to start just to indicate that a disclaimer of, of audit opinion generally in simple terms means that we were, as Auditor General, not able to express an opinion on the fair presentation of the financial statements that were presented to us. Um, and that was primarily due to the matter of the change in, in, accounting, in accounting policy. In conducting the audit, um, we are guided by the auditing standards, and those standards do require us to engage with management and those charged with governance uh, in terms of planning the audit, uh, the execution of the audit, and ultimately um, with the concluding and, and, and finalization of that particular process. Um, we do believe that in, in, in carrying out our responsibility, um, we have certainly ensured that um, we have sufficiently engaged um, on critical matters that would have impacted the audit opinion um, with, with, the, with the RAP management as well as with those, with those that have been charged uh, with governance. Um, as it relates to, to the matters that have impacted the disclaimer of opinion, um, I want to start first by indicating that as the Auditor General, when we audit, um, we audit in terms of um, the, the international auditing standards. Um, and as we do that work, um, we are guided by the standard setters. And the standard setters in this case would be the accounting standard boards, um, which is responsible for setting up the standards which uh, the individual entities then should comply with. Our responsibility is then to ensure that we assess whether the financial statements that have been prepared have actually been prepared in accordance with the framework uh, that has been set. Um, so the accounting standards board then remains the authority in terms of setting those standards. And for us, it's then to assess whether in, in preparation of those financial statements that has been done accordingly. As it relates to the matter on the accounting policy, I just want to first highlight that the change in accounting policy um, in, that was adopted by RAP, um, it was based on a standard called Ipsos 42. Now, when you look at the standards that had been made available by the accounting standards board as the accounting, as the accounting standards setting body, we do note that that particular standard was not available for use. Uh, meaning that the REV could not have then used that standard to prepare the financial statements uh, that we were presented with. Um, and I'm glad that uh, the, the accounting standards board is also online and, and, and they can also indicate their position as it relates to that. But it's important that we indicate as the Auditor General that as we audited, that was one of the key things that we needed to assess. And it was very clear to us that that particular standard was not available for use by the RAP. 
Also, I think it's important that I highlight the fact that um, in, in, in doing our work, what we also do is we also make sure that when it comes to technical complex accounting matters, we consult uh, internally uh, to make sure that um, on difficult technical accounting matters, the position of the audit team is supported um, by, by a technical report or technical assessment. In concluding on the Ipsos 42 matter, we did ensure that um, we consult internally. Um, and the basis of our finding is actually based on the technical report that was prepared internally from our office. Um, when we then issued the finding to the ramp, we ensured that all the principal uh, assumptions and, and key factors that would have impacted our conclusion was actually was shared with the ramp through that uh, audit finding. So I think it's important that we also highlight that, that particular fact. Um, we did share that with, with the ramp as well, um, and, and the colleagues will also talk to it um, as they present uh, later on in the day. Um, I would also like to touch on the fact that when we went through um, the dispute resolution process, um, the, one of the key stakeholders that was involved in that process was uh, the Office of the Accountant General. Um, and through that process, we were able to ensure that by the time we finalized our audit opinion, um, we had actually ensured that uh, sufficient consultation had actually been done, um, and the OAG had actually finalised their audit, uh, their their technical opinion around this matter, and that that opinion had actually been equally shared um, with us as the Office of the Auditor General, as well as with with the REF. The other matters that we'll be touching on today is is the other matters that are not necessarily related to the change in accounting policy matter. As I indicated at the beginning, one of the things that we identified was that there was material non-compliance with legislation, um, and particularly that related to procurement and contract management, as well as expenditure management as it relates to the prevention of irregular expenditure. So as we then unfold, as we then uh, uh, prepare the presentation and, and then present to the committee today, we will also be touching on those material findings that had been identified in procurement and contract management. The other areas that actually impacted uh, the compliance within the RAF was the adjustments that were made to the financial statements or material misstatements that we identified in the financial statements that were presented for audit. So that was the other reason for um, that was the other reason for uh, for the compliance matters that, that we identified within the audit process. The last part that I would also want the the, the committee to be aware of is the matters around the IT governance. And as we then unpack uh, some of the weaknesses that we found in the environment, we indicate uh, to the committee some of the vulnerabilities that existed in the, in the environment. Um, it is important as I close, Chair, and, and I hand over to Binay, that um, the, the matters that were under dispute, especially as it, uh, it pertains to the change in accounting policy, are matters that would have had an impact on other areas of the audit, um, such as the finalization of the process, uh, the sharing of the representation letter, which is the assertions that management made to the audit team in terms of uh, how the financial statements were prepared. So to that extent, we will then also share with the committee 
what are the other areas that were then impacted uh, by the issue around the change in accounting policy. So, Chair, maybe if I can be allowed to pause here um, and allow Vinay to then take us through the detailed uh, briefing document that we shared with the community in, in our previous engagement. Thanks, Chair. I think that's fine. I think that background helps colleagues now just, just get the high level um, because we did receive the presentation prior. So we'll cover the same entire level points. Uh, good morning once again, Honourable Chairperson, Honourable Members. Uh, yeah, at a, at a high level, I think Marty did touch on, on most of the issues. Uh, so I'll go through at, at sort of a high level uh, and I'm moving to the audit opinion history. And you'll see the audit opinion history reflects uh, the, the past four years and the latest audit opinion of 2020-21, which, which uh, was the disclaimer of audit opinion. And it was primarily around the disagreement uh, in terms of the change in accounting policy for the accounting for the uh, claims liability or the provision for the claims liability. Uh, coupled to that was other areas that were impacted. Uh, the, the written representations, obviously, with the, with the dispute and the disagreement, uh, those were not provided. The impact in terms of the solvency and liquidity of the REP was also uh, a matter that we couldn't really pronounce on uh, because we didn't know the extent of the misstatement of the, uh, the liability. And, and uh, going concern or the solvency and liquidity of the REP has been an issue for, for many years, as the committee would be aware. Uh, and, and with this change in accounting policy and our inability to be able to quantify the the, ester, the uh, misstatement on the liability, uh, we were not we weren't able to pronounce on whether the RAP would be a going concern uh, in the absence of that. Uh, then Marty did touch on the material misstatements to the financial statements. Uh, that was around the the whole issue uh, of the change in accounting policy and the the misstatements that arose from that. Expenditure management was an area that we flagged also in the uh, audit report, and that's the report, repeated incurrence of irregular expenditure. And there were certain uh, procurement uh, and contract management issues, non-compliance that we did identify. Uh, we wish to commend the REP uh, in terms of the reporting on the performance uh, information in that we didn't identify any material uh, findings in terms of the usefulness or reliability of the reported performance around that. Uh, at, a, at a higher level, Chair, I'm not going to touch on uh, this part in terms of the change in accounting policy and the, the overall message basically talks to uh, a regression in the audit outcome uh, to, to a disclaimer in 2020-21 financial year. Uh, we wouldn't touch on the quality of the financial statements that because they're primarily results from uh, the change in accounting policy and the misstatement uh, in the claims liability. Uh, then if we move further down, uh, Honorable Chairperson, uh, the next item is the irregular expenditure. In terms of the irregular expenditure, there was $92 million, uh, that was uh, identified, and this was identified by management. And it was uh, related to a non-compliance in terms of the uh, preferential procurement uh, framework act uh, in that the price evaluation was not done. As I said, this was identified by management. Uh, and also consequence management was implemented uh, with regards to this uh, uh, non-compliance that was identified that led to the irregular expenditure. Uh, going concern, Honorable Chairperson, Honorable Members, as I said, we, wouldn't, we weren't able to conclude on whether the RAP would be a going concern. As I say, the, the misstatement of the liability has a significant impact 
Uh, I mean, that's a major, that's the biggest line item on the financial statements. Uh, and a misstatement to that would have a, se- a serious uh, uh, change in the solvency or liquidity of the REF. So we weren't able to conclude on whether the REF would be a going concern. Uh, the management representation letter that Amadi did touch, it, it flowed from the whole disagreement process uh, and the dispute that, that arose uh, in terms of finalization of the audit. Uh, the REF audit finalization and the process followed. Amadi covered that in detail in terms of the, the process that was followed from our side. And Honorable Chairperson, we, we just wanted to reiterate uh, that in our view, we followed the process in concluding the audit for 2021. Uh, in terms of the litigation that's currently ongoing, Honourable Chairperson, Honourable Members, you are aware that uh, the, the litigation is ongoing. Uh, we have filed our uh, reply or our answering affidavit. Uh, so the latest status is that we filed our answering affidavit and then we're just waiting for the rep to file their, their replying affidavit and their update would be uh, for the High Court to set a date for the year. Uh, in terms of the modification paragraphs, again, this is a repeat chairperson. It's the areas where uh, that we, we found in the financial statements on which we couldn't express an opinion as the disclaimer of audit opinion, and it primarily related to the claims liability, claims expenditure, and the related disclosure notes, mostly impacted by the change in accounting policy and the misstatement to that. Uh, and then, as I said, going concern irregular expenditure, and then uh, the management representation letter. Just uh, uh, just a point on the performance reporting, Honorable Chairperson, once again, uh, just to say there were no material findings that were identified on the usefulness and, and reliability. Uh, so in terms of the annual performance report, uh, no material findings that were identified. But on the compliance subject matter, the irregular expenditure, I did touch on that. Uh, and you'll see the value of the irregular expenditure. I mean, the bulk comes from uh, an historical contract. Uh, which is still being investigated, uh, and the in the current year or the 2021 financial year, the 92 million that did touch on was identified by management, uh, and that's the the, uh, the the reason why you wouldn't see the 341 going to 340 uh, going up by 92 million is because we used the figures in the financial statements on which we expressed an opinion. And it was before the adjustment uh, that was made to the financial statement. So it was identified by management, uh, but after the financial statements were submitted for it. So hence you wouldn't see the big jump of 92 million. Uh, uh, and in terms of the financial statements, the quality of the financial statements that was primarily as a result of the material misstatements due to the change in accounting policy. Uh, and then the repeated incurrence of irregular expenditure is the second area of non-compliance that we've identified. Uh, in terms of IT performance, uh, I'm sure the committee would be aware uh, of the uh, ransomware attack uh, that the RAP suffered, and that pointed to certain weaknesses in the whole uh, IT space and the uh, and the ability to be able to detect and prevent uh, the the attacks uh, in terms of having firewalls, etc and managing those. So that is something that we did undertake uh, to, to perform uh, in terms of a cybersecurity review in the 21-22 financial year. And once that is uh, reported on uh, chairperson and, and members, we'll be able to, to give you further uh, feedback in terms of the outcome of that review. Uh, the drivers of internal control at a high level, uh, chairperson, 
We've identified certain areas of concern, uh, obviously around oversight responsibility linked to the change in accounting policy, uh, the reporting, and then obviously compliance and, and monitoring of compliance due to the material non-compliance that we've identified. Uh, Chairperson, I think that would cover my uh, part of the presentation on this matter. Thank you. Right. Thanks, thanks, Chair. Um, so this is the document that we had shared, I think, previously. So the key things that I just want to, to highlight from what has been discussed and reiterated, Chair, is that one is that the IFSIS 42 was really not available for use by in terms of um, what ASB has said, and, and I'm hoping that they can deal with it when they come in. The second issue is that we had waited, so Rev. I referred this matter to OH's office in, in August uh, last year, and we've only signed the audit report in December. Um, that means we've allowed sufficient time for that process uh, to take its course, and, and we got confirmation from OH's office that they have a position on the matter. That, that I would like to clarify that we did not necessarily ignore that dispute resolution process, but we waited for it to be finalized. I suppose the definition of what finalized means might be different, right? If finalized means that the position agrees with you, maybe you might uh, see it differently. So I think for me, that's the, the second thing that I like to to, to bring to, to the committee's attention um, that we deal with it. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jackson. Can you please repeat that last part? As it relates to OHE, I just I didn't get that. that. Okay, sure. Let's just get the DM seated. What I what I was saying is that just be specific and detailed. Um, I'm raising this because last time you gave us the date of the fourth of December as the date you've received um, confirmation from the Office of the uh, Accountant General, please. All right, once we welcome the Deputy Minister of Transport. Uh, the meeting is underway already. We've just, we are concluding on road accident fund. Uh, AG report on road accident fund. Uh, and then after that, the lady right next to you from National Treasury will be speaking to us. So that's how far we are. All right, AJ. Thanks. I, I was saying that, um, so the matter was referred to a OAG by RF in, in August. And the position by OAG was finalized in December. You're right. I think it was early, first week of December. And we only signed the report around the 25th of December. So we had waited for a OAG to finalize their position before we signed off our audit report. Thanks. AG, is that all you wish to say? Are you fine and covered? All right. Okay. All right, that's fine. All right, that we've heard AG. Can we go to National Treasury? Uh General, I'm over to you. Thank you very much, Honourable Chair, and good morning to the members again. Um, I was hoping that they can just help me with the presentation on that side. Okay, we'll go back it. Ben, are you assisting? Presentation? Mm -hmm. 
I asked that this be done. We had, I even said we are physically now sharing, as opposed to the virtual sharing. Co-host, right? Can we get the accountant general, sir? And then any other presentation, can that be sorted out? Jay, shall I continue while we um, um, just give it a minute? No, just another minute because others may not have <laughs> co-host. <laughs> All right, uh, you, as soon as they've got it, you'll be good to go. Alright, um, can Lugesa get ICT here and um, Accountant General, Romunyu AG, uh, can proceed. Uh, is it up? Map, you can proceed. Uh, once it gets up, we'll. Yeah, I'm trying to, which is handy. The house is sitting at two today. Yeah, Obega, you can proceed. Thank you, Jade. As soon as it comes up, colleagues will get it, and copies will, will make sure the chair of REF in particular gets the copy on behalf of REF of what's being presented and the management. Proceed, now. Thank you very much, Jay. And thank you for the invitation to oh, also come address you uh, on the matters. We didn't get an opportunity to speak in the last meeting, so I'm very glad that we're here today. Um, basically, my office, the office of we were often confused with the AG, we, um, also the OAG and not the AG. Um, we always consulted in, in technical matters um, and then, of course, um, also in the PFMA and the MFMA, uh, we provide um, some technical guidance where, where there seems to be a problem on, on accounting matters. So the RAV um, did contact us early in August, as the AG also mentioned. I think we also got involved much earlier as we heard about the change in the accounting policies um, in, in the media as well. So um, the RAV then also proactively written to the National Treasury to engage with us. I made a summary of the, the high-level matters that uh, that we did discuss with the Road Accident Fund. So, sorry, Tim. I don't want to say which August. Can they just be specific when saying August 2021 so that we are clear? Thanks. Oh, that's a fair request. 
No problem. It was August 2021. Yes, I was now a year later. Sorry. Um, all my slides pertain to the matter of the 2021 audit. Uh, so basically, we were looking at three things from our officer's side. Is um, The first one, um, we helped the RAV with the definition of social benefits, and then specifically as it relates to GRAV 19. Um, the second matter is um, the obligating event, and that's important uh, for the recognition of the liability, or um, in this case, that's also a bit of a contentious um, subject. And then the third matter, we looked at whether IPSIS, to, uh, IPSIS 42 can be applied in developing accounting policies. So we can go to the next slide. If we look at the social benefits, um, I know that the entity has also provided a lot of guidance on that, and of course, it remains the accounting authorities' um, um, choice on how to develop these um, policies. But our guidance to the RAF, and I think it was stated in a letter that we provided them in September uh, 2021, is that we have to look, um, if we look at social benefits of GRAF 19, and although the standard doesn't give us um, quite a, a formal definition, it does give us guidance. And apologies for those non-accountants here. Um, I'll try and not be too technical. So um, in terms of graph 19, we said um, um, social benefits is the delivery of health, education, housing, transport, and other social services to, to communities. And there um, we often see that the services um, are rendered, but there's no amount equivalent uh, paid for the value of these services. And then also we get the instance where there's payments to families, the age, the disabled, unemployed, veterans, and we all see these type of grants. And that's how we uh, define social benefits in terms of, of the GRAB standards currently. Um, you as government, we also use the, the finance, government finance statistics, and that's also very important for our um, definitions in terms of social protection. So we look towards that um, book that we have all the definitions in, and there is very clear that social protection um, is the systematic intervention then um, to relieve households and individuals of the burden. So they also define social risks, and um, then we looked um, at the nature of the social protection um, to see if your benefits that you are paying are falling into the social benefit category. I think it's important to mention that all social benefits are always provided for in collective arrangements, and that's the bit where we, we actually found that the Road Accident Fund um, didn't form part of this collective arrangement. So um, it would be a specific amount to the elderly or a specific amount for the aged. So that's the kind of collective arrangement that we have that we always see in social benefits. And um, in the case of the Road Accident Fund, um, we could not see that collective arrangement specifically negotiated in um, each case of motor vehicle accidents. So um, in short time, we concluded um, that the Road Accident Fund would not pay social benefits, and therefore the standard would not be um, um, in, in uh, needed to be looked at. The next um, thing that we discussed with the Road Accident Fund is the obligating event. 
and that in terms of COVID-19 is the event that creates a legal constructive obligation that results in an entity having no realistic alternative to settling that obligation. So that's when we need to go to the financial statements and see that obligation in the financial statements. The OAG then concluded that the obligating event for the road accident fund is the motor vehicle accident, and that is how we applied it in the previous uh, years under the IFRS for treatment. We, we did, however, say that we needed to look at each of the classes of, of transactions and of benefits that the, the road accident fund pays out separately, and we can't make a generalist kind of um, overarching arguments, uh, but we need to look at it um, per each class. And then um, we also considered the date, and I think that was at the time when the audit was nearing conclusion, and we were almost out of time. We were ending November or December 2021. Uh, we did start um, looking at um, the date when we can start uh, raising these liabilities but we thought to uh, then also have the discussion for the future years rather seeing that the audit was nearing completion. I think uh, the third matter is then the availability of IPSIS 42. I think both the AG and um, the other colleagues of Road Accident Fund have expressed the technicality of this. Um, basically, we concluded that IPSIS 42 would not be available uh, for use of for the road accident fund. We said that basically because um, Directive 5, uh, that's the directive that that counting standards board issued. I think they started issuing this uh, already in 2009, and each year they have a refresh of the available standards, and that's contained in this Directive 5. Um, and that directive importantly says that you have to apply a standard of GRAP where it's approved by the Minister of Finance. So that's your first um, first criteria. So use the standard of GRAP. When a standard of GRAP is then not available, um, you can't early adopt a standard um, that's not been promulgated by the Minister of Finance, but you can use it in considering your accounting policies. Um, and then lastly, if you want to use the IPSAS or I4S standard, um, as is the case here with the Road Accident Fund, um, you may only use it if it's listed in Directive 5. And then uh, the OG consulted with the AG as well as the Accounting Standard Board, and we concluded that IPSAS 42 is not listed in Directive 5 and therefore not available for use. I think uh, we also then, as the AG mentioned, um, went into the dispute resolution process. That's a process that my office with the technical teams of the AG's office run, um, and then um, we looked at various matters, but I think this became the concluding factor, is that the standard was not available and both our offices then agreed and the dispute was resolved um, to say that um, we believe that IPSAS 42 can't be followed in a different standard then should be used uh, for the accounting policies. And uh, I think that was the extent of my office's um, technical involvement with this matter. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, to the Office of the Accountant General, um, 
Logi, are there any additional copies of this document? There, would you please get it to the chair of REF and to the deputy minister, the executives of REF. Um, okay. Uh, ASB, are you online? We are indeed, chair. <clears throat> so, don't we just take it? Chairman, we are online. I've not checked one of these hybrid things. <laughs> complicated. There yeah, are ASPs online virtually. Please just uh, ASB. <clears throat> yes, Chair. Yes, Chair. Oh, there you go. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thank you. And you? No, we are all well this side. I hope you've been following. So now I keep looking for you. All right. I'm sure you've heard everything that has been said. Um, can we get your input uh, on the matter at hand? Yes. Um, yes. Um, and, uh, I do have a presentation that I can share with you. I have just sent it through to the Secretariat if they are able to flight it. Um, otherwise, I could share my screen. I don't know how this would work. Um, ICT, please give ASB the sharing right. Um, they will hand over to you sharing rights in the next 10 seconds. Then you can flight it. <laughs> Nicola, man. I, 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 man. I was a man. It was not a literal 10 seconds. Please excuse us this side. We have not seen each other in this form in a long while. <laughs> See each other on oversights. So uh, it will get you sharing shortly. Um, okay, I think. 1955. The people shall share. <laughs> and screens and... All right. Thank you, Chair. Can, are you able to see my screen? Just stand by. Um, I think I think proceed. The screen will come right. up shortly so we have time. Yeah. Thanks, ma'am. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Chairman and, and fellow members of SCOPA uh, and to other colleagues from the Road Accident Fund, the Auditor General and the National Treasury. I'm also joined today by the Chairman of our board, um, and obviously he will add anything if, if he needs to. So I, I think um, I, I will explain to you from our perspective what sort of our, our problem statement is and how we have been involved in, in this matter. 
Um, so I, I think from our perspective, it's really been whether or not the change in accounting policy, which is fundamentally the description of, of how the road accident fund has um, decided when liabilities are liabilities for the road accident fund and what value they should be in the financial statements. That's what the accounting policy describes. Um, it, it, whether or not this change in accounting policy that they had adopted in, in April and May 2021 is appropriate. I think just to indicate as a starting point, we, we are also a, a Schedule 3A public entity. We are responsible to the Minister of Finance. Um, he's our executive authority. So we are in the finance family and obviously work very closely with the Office of the Accountant General as well as the Auditor General, there's sort of three disciplines that work towards financial reporting. So as the Accounting Standards Board, we set standards of generally recognized accounting practice for all public sector entities. So um, obviously there may be reason for us to have more uh, prescribed accounting requirements for some entities. Um, but obviously, because we deal with public entities, municipalities, etc., we have a very broad range of standards. And obviously, for us to have a broad range of standards, we follow a robust consultation process, which is public, uh, to develop our standards to ensure that whatever we develop is, is both objective and transparent and suitable for a range of entities. As, as really a fund fundamental point, I want to in, uh, emphasize that as the ASB, we do not provide technical advice or opinions on individual accounting matters, transactions or events. Our job is to set standards that can be widely utilized. How those standards are applied is obviously within the preparer's domain. We do not give opinions on any matters. Looking at the history of this particular matter, the Road Accident Fund approached us in in January uh, 2021 to ask about the status of the International Financial Reporting Standard on, on insurance contracts and whether it is mandatory for the Road Accident Fund to apply the standard. A bit of history, back in 2014 already, the board was sort of considering that there was no international standard available for us to use to develop a standard of GRAP, which is, is what we would do to, be, to develop our standards. And there was a sense that some of the entities in the public sector space in South Africa could be social insurers. Um, with a, it's a, It was a very loose term. It wasn't very well defined. A lot of these terms actually come from economic statistics rather than accounting. And our board had indicated to a range of entities that applying I4S4 in considering their accounting as a social insurer may be appropriate. So it was still up to the discretion of, of, of entities to decide whether or not it was appropriate. Just to give you a sense of who falls within this category, it, it is potentially the Road Accident Fund, uh, the Compensation Fund, the UIF and the National Home Builders Registration Council. Obviously, if there are other entities that consider that they have insurance or insurance-like activities, then I4S4 could also be applicable. In, in terms of the, the consultations that we had with RAF, um, we met with them in January 2021 and issued a, a formal letter for sh shortly thereafter in February 2021, outlining a number of key issues based on the discussions that we had. Firstly, we had indicated that I4S4 is not mandatory for the entity apply. 
entities should have assessed themselves whether or not the standard is uh, applicable to their kinds of economic activities. So based on the benefits that they have, do they think they have the characteristics of insurance or not? And we use the term insurance-like quite often because if you think about insurance, um, you know, if I go to insurance and call them up and, and want insurance, of course, we would have a contractual arrangement, but there would also be this idea of risks and rewards that would need to be exchanged. In a public sector context, we had indicated that um, the absence of a contract doesn't matter or the yeah the absence of a contract doesn't matter, but really you would need to consider the economic characteristics of what you do and whether or not it was similar to insurance. We also um, sort of in assessing the absence of a contract, also thinking about the labels that certain entities associate with, with themselves. Um, so I use a, a neutral example like the Unemployment Insurance Fund. Just because they are called the Unemployment Insurance Fund doesn't mean they automatically have insurance. It was still up to them to make this assessment. So this is it is really within the domain of entities to have decided. Importantly, international standards, if they are referenced to develop accounting policies, they are not adopted. They are just considered in formulating an accounting policy. So that was the first point that we had made clear in our communication to the Road Accident Fund. The second part was the statuses of IPSIS 42 and then having a look at really what uh, our plans were going to be with IPSIS 42 in the local environment. The International Public Sector Accounting Standards was issued by the International Public Sector Accounting Standards Board, the IPSSB, in 2019. After more or less 20 years of deliberation, which may sound like an incredibly long period of time, but you would appreciate that social benefits is an extremely complex area, particularly to understand when exactly is the event that gives rise to, to when government could have a social benefit. Um, you know, some of the arguments sort of went along a spectrum of, well, you know, if a child is born and you know, based on economic data that they are going to, um, you know, ha have minimal income, perhaps not achieve a certain level of income. You know, there were there were thoughts sort of thrown around uh, throughout these 20 year periods that, that the past event could go back to when the child is born. So finding something reasonable and rational that made sense in the financial statements was quite a difficult task to get to. So that is why it took so long. Um, in our comment letter to the International Public Sector Accounting Standards Board on that proposed standard, we did indicate that we did not support many aspects of its principles. And a key principle which we did not support was the recognition point for liabilities. It was too late. It's more or less on a, on a cash basis. Um, and we didn't agree with the extent of, of measurement. So when I say that this is very close to, to something like cash, what it means or what IPSIS 42 proposes really is that once you've met all the criteria to receive your payment, only then will I recognize an accrual and it will only be until I need to re-verify all of your information again, which means that I could have, if you take the SASA grants as an example, just a one-month liability being recognized. Um, obviously, knowing that we do have different kinds of funds that could potentially be social insurance, and I use that in a very loose context, that could have various recognition points, we did not support this from a local perspective. Ourselves in Germany um, were two of the countries that did not support the standard from the outset. Other countries don't support the standard for various other things, including the interpretation of what is a social benefit and a social risk, but I'm not going to touch on that today. 
I think what we were most concerned with is that the IPSSB imposed a set of rules in the accounting standard, which would not be workable from an accounting perspective here locally, just given the variety of social benefit schemes that we do have. So we had explained this in, in our uh, letter to the Road Accident Fund, I think just to indicate that the Road Accident Fund has also been involved in the IPSIS uh, project for some time. Um, it, it is not uh, new for them, as well as our interactions with them in developing the standards. So I think when it became clear that we would need to do something around IPSIS 42 on social benefits, we had indicated in our work program, which is our three-year three strategy to develop standards, um, obviously that the development of a standard of GRAP on social benefits was a high priority for us, but we knew already at that stage that we were going to have to depart from, the, from IPSIS 42 just because we did not think that applying those principles um, would provide users locally. So users are users of the financial statements with really the correct information. We have started with the social benefit project in 2021. And I mean, it's been a known and identified project of the board for a very long period of time. And I think our views have been fairly clear that, that, that we don't support IPSIS 42. And this is what we had articulated in, in the letter to, to the Road Accident Fund. Second, in the third point that we had emphasized in the communication to the Road Accident Fund was really um, the, the criteria to change accounting policies. So we do have a particular standard that deals with this. It's called GRAP3, Accounting Policies, Changes in Accounting Estimates and Errors. And it really prescribes the criteria for when you want to change accounting policies um, I've been through what the accounting policies are. It's primarily when you put things on your balance sheet, either an asset and a liability, what's the trigger point? And then obviously the accounting policies would go on to describe at what value plus any other information that you want to disclose. Very importantly, GRAP 3 only, only allows changes in accounting policy in two instances. The first one is because the change is required because there is a new standard that has been approved by the Minister for Application, or when there are existing standards that are being amended or have been amended and the Minister approves their application. Quite clearly, this is not an issue in this particular case. So we are moving into the second rationale for changing accounting policies, which is really that management considers that the change in policy will provide users with reliable and more relevant information. And you'll see I've emphasized three parts. So firstly, users, we are talking about users are, are the external users of the financial statements, and they represent two categories. They represent resource providers. So obviously, these are the folk that provide funding to an organization. They extend credit, so whether it's to buy goods and services. Fundamentally, it's taxpayers, and really everyone that has sort of any public contribution or otherwise um, that, that goes to an entity. And if we are talking about service recipients, that's the second category who uses the financial statements, are really those who would benefit from, in this instance, the road accidents, the fund services. So our test is always who are our users and what information are we going to give them about what we do and is it relevant and is it reliable? The second test is once you have identified who those broad categories of users are, is to assess whether or not the information is re reliable. And of course, this, this is really, I would say, an internal factor that needs to be considered. 
um, based on the information that is available to management, past, present, um, and any other other assumptions, including actuarial assumptions that would need to be made to determine what the value is of an asset or, in this instance, a liability. The last component, which is extremely important, is really that it's it's very explicit, more relevant information should be provided in the financial statements. So when you change your accounting policies, it must relate to more reliable, more relevant information to the users, which I've described as being a very broad user group. So. I, I, I have broadly discussed with you what the accounting sort of matters were. And, and these are the three things that we had highlighted in our communication to the Road Accident Fund in February 2021. And I think obviously events have uh, have sort of subsequently um, evolved since then. So as does the ASB, it's an ongoing matter for us, the development of a standard of GRAP on social benefits. We started with this in April 2021, and since then, the board has made a number of preliminary decisions. And late in 2021, it emerged that the board would really not follow um, IPSIS 42, um, particularly, again, because we did not agree with the recognition point. So what is the past event that triggers um, the recognition of social benefits, whether they are contributory, so whether they're funded by contributions or whether they are not. The, our board will be discussing a first draft of the standard in September and, and fingers crossed we will have it finalized in December, but it's taken us quite a long deliberation and we've been very deliberate in, in our extensive consultation that we have undertaken to get to this point, but we are not in alignment with Ipsos 42. You may be wondering why the ASB is involved. Um, so we are primarily involved because of a court ruling in 2022 um, filed that we become jointly included um, through a joinder application in the matter between the AGSA and the Road Accident Fund. The court had indicated um, in some of its, its earlier rulings that we have or we are a party with a material interest in the matter. We were joined as a second respondent in June 2022, and I really want to emphasize that we are not a party to the dispute. We are joined based on the court's indication that we are a party with a material interest, but the primary dispute remains between the Road Accident Fund and the ADA. We obviously, because of the court's ruling that we do have a material interest in this matter, we did not oppose being joined. Mm -hmm. And we have obviously complied with all of the requirements that the court has indicated that we should. We filed a responding affidavit in 2022. I think I really just want to emphasize, if I do have an opportunity to say that this is really a precedent setting case for us as the ASB. I, I really, there have been a couple of, of cases already where there have been potential disputes about the accounting outcomes. Um, we cannot simply be joined to every every case where people disagree um, about an accounting matter. We are an incredibly small organization. Our budget is 15 million rand for the year. We have six employees and, and we really need to focus our activities on, on sort of improving financial reporting. Um, so yeah, I mean, we are really concerned that we have been joined to the case. Um, but obviously we do, we, we want to make sure at least that there is, is a good outcome in this particular matter. And this is why we are, um, 
sort of complying with whatever the court is requiring us to do at this stage. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to take Matt's questions about where we where we are, how we got to this point, um, and, and sort of our in, involvement in the matter, um, and anything anything else that you may have. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Janine, um, for that presentation. Um, I think. Uh, okay. All right. Um, colleagues, I think that's. We've, we've heard AG, National Treasury, um, and uh, ASB. So can we, and as I said, we've heard URAF, um, unless there's something that they want to add now, so that because they are here, before we take questions. Going once, going twice, right, gone. All right, Babusome. Just clarity from me, Chair. I think uh, in the first instance, let me um, thank the presenters on the presentations. Um, from uh, ASP, um, you, you have spoken about your, your role and expectation in terms of the uh, accounting standards and, and how you would uh, wish for any entity um, would follow uh, in terms of arriving at any change of such standard. Uh, if you can confirm for me um, that enough, enough, enough information that one, uh, there must be a sign of standard uh, by the Minister uh, of Finance uh, and then entities would follow uh, in terms of determination uh, of the change of their own standards. Two, uh, that in the same manner as the Office of the Accountant General has referred, uh, that they, there is uh, no listed EPSO uh, uh, standard uh, in the uh, in terms of what they would have advised uh, in terms of the notice, notice five uh, uh, to entities. Uh, and, uh, and, and therefore, uh, there is no way that entities would uh, uh, do so uh, in terms of a choice uh, in, that, in that aspect. As the owner of the standard, could you uh, just, uh, in, in, in simple English, if there's anything like that, just, just advise on that, on that okay, um, Honourable Mende, and then Honourable Zamba, and then we get responses and take the next slide so no questions get lost. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, Chair, I thought you would allow me to respond because we may be covered in the response. If we need. Yes. Okay, so that's fine. All right, let's get responses to that then, um, and then who will come in after. Ben, ASP? So, so thank you, Chair. Um, I, I am also mindful about what is before the court at this stage and, and what, what I should be answering. So, so let me give you um, the, the technical answer as simply as I can. So if you want to change reporting frameworks or, or develop accounting policies uh, rather, 
Um, there is a list that you need to follow in the standards of Grab Grab 3, which would give you an idea of what you need to do uh, to change your accounting policy. So if there isn't a standard of GRAP that's signed off by the minister uh, to apply, which you know in this instance there isn't because we are working on one, the options would be to go to a similar standard of or a standard of GRAP, so something within the reporting framework of GRAP that already deals with these kinds of transactions, um, even if not specifically has the same look and feel from an economic perspective. So what other liability standard could you use? Um, the second step after that would be to go to, we have what uh, we call the conceptual framework in the standards of GRAP, which is the basic building blocks, the basic principles that you would use to develop an accounting policy. And this, this document really tells you fundamentally then whether or not um you have an asset or you have a liability and point you to possible um, approaches to how to come up with a value. So I think you need to get over the hurdle first of, is there a similar standard that you could have applied within the suite <clears throat> in the absence of a signed off standard? Barring that, you should have gone to the conceptual framework, which the ASB has issued. And only then do you consider international standards but I think, again, if you have a look at the international standards, we did not list IPSIS 42 in Directive 5. We list the standards that you should apply rather than the ones that you should not apply. And as I say, we have touched on a little bit of the communication that uh, we, we did uh, provide in February 2021 already, which I think did express the view that we were not supportive of, of IPSIS 42. So I hope that answers your question easily enough. Thanks, Alicia. Okay, Honourable Mende, uh, Honourable Mazamban, Honourable Habide, Honourable Fanminen, but you can do your one-on-ones um, until you're done. I won't come in between. Thank you very much, Chairperson. I'm partly covered on the matter of, is there any other body that can authorize a standard besides the bodies that are well-known and can give such authority for any entity to have a standard? Now, to ASB again, you mentioned that this could be a precedent. And I'm already imagining a situation where UIF has got its own accounting standard that just it just implements. And the SAG also mentioned that in terms of the material benefits and, and how they account, many of the figures, they get lost. They made an example of like the liabilities. They will just be written to zero with the standard that will be simply lost in the system. And according to how the explanation of RAF is given to us, is a matter of it's a social benefit. And social benefits is very huge. It goes, it cuts right across many, many departments. In fact, uh, the, the public health is effectively for social benefits. And therefore it means we could be creating a precedence for any other person to come up with a standard which will effectively write off many of the liabilities and therefore erode the accounting standards of the country. 
So the, the, the matter, again, I would like you to give us in terms of that precedence and the dangers if this is allowed. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, through you, if I may respond to that. So let me start off with the social benefit spectrum first, and then I'll come back to the precedent setting. So so social benefits, as you rightly point out, is a huge concern um, when it comes to, to public accountability. Um, social benefits, social insurance, which I said is sort of the umbrella term that gets used when we talk about it from an economic perspective, could include even things like the employee's pension fund, which we do have a standard for, I'm happy to say, so I'm not so worried about that. But it's more these non-exchange transactions where government is really providing benefits to those in need to respond to a social risk. These benefits can be provided in cash or they can be provided in kind even. So if you think of some of the flood relief, for example, in KZN and elsewhere, it's a really significant um, amount of money that um, although it's being paid, it's not necessarily highlighted as such in the financial statements. Um, so what we are trying to do in developing our standard is deal with both these aspects, whether you give benefits in cash or whether you give benefits in kind, and obviously making sure that we recognize our obligations as government at the right moment in time. So if I, I mentioned that there are a couple of entities that are, are potentially, we had thought in 2014 in the same space. Um, so it was the Road Accident Fund, it was the UIF, it was the Compensation Fund, um, the National Home Builders Registration Council, and this was, is also a potential candidate. So social benefits in cash actually extends really widely. Um, so what we are working on at the moment, and we hope to have a draft out at the end of the year, draft standard that is, would really deal with these cash benefits. And what we are really trying to focus on is, is what in terms of um, the users, the you, you yourselves, the scoper, your, your fellow parliamentarians, um, you know, upwards into treasury, upwards um, or, or across to suppliers, funders, et cetera, taxpayers would want to know about the what, when does government's obligation arise? And I think our, our sense at this stage is that it's when the social risk happens. Um, so I'm going into a little bit of technicality. Um, but I, I think from our perspective in developing our standard, we are developing a robust enough standard that will deal with all of the schemes that we have the ones that I have mentioned, the other one that I have not yet as mentioned is, is um, the social grants that are paid um, by the Department of Social Development through SASA. And obviously, whether or not you do or don't have contributions um, can have particular issues in terms of accounting. But importantly, we will also say that if you do not fall within the scope of the social benefit standard, um, for, for various reasons, you will have to go to our general liability recognition standard, which is, is GRAP 19. So from our perspective, we are still developing the standard and, and it, from our perspective, it's going to be robust enough to deal with those range of benefits. In terms of the precedent setting, I don't know if the court will rule, um, what the past event is. Um, I, I think, um, the court would probably want to focus its attention on the, the legal processes rather than get caught up in giving an, a specific accounting opinion. At least that is my hope. 
But what I what I meant by it being precedent setting is is that as a standard setter, we are meant to be objective. We are meant to be transparent. We do not provide technical advice on matters. So for us to to be involved in ongoing court matters when they relate to GRAP is really difficult for us to deal with. Um, so, so that is more my concern is that when everybody has uh, or anybody has a, a disagreement with, with the auditors or, or someone else about the interpretation of our standards, we are automatically now going to be seen as a party with a material interest and have to make our way to court. And we just do not have um, the level of resources to deal with that. And, and it's really not, not helpful in terms of progressing our mandate as a standard setter. I hope that answers your question. Now, just the last one, Chair. Let's just say, not to go into the merits of the court, let's just say there was no court case. If, it, if an entity or a department hasn't followed what you have outlined in terms of alternatives in developing a new accounting tool, if any of the entities would do that, in the current situation where the accounting uh, standards have to be measured by the AG and uh, be monitored by yourselves and the Treasury. If this situation had happened and there was no court case, will it be a situation that should be acceptable? Or is a situation that is out of the standards or the rules and the regulations and therefore it's not acceptable? Thing. So, so I'm going to to answer this um, obviously as carefully as I can. Um, obviously, as the ASB, we are as I've mentioned, we are the standard setter. We are not a regulator, um, which which I think is different to, for example, the audit regulator. Urba is the regulator, and obviously they have the ability to to sort of review individual audit opinions that get expressed and and make up their own mind about whether or not it was correct or not, or deficient or not, that is not our role as a standard setter. Um, we do not have this regulatory capacity as, as what other entities do. I think in terms of assessing the appropriateness of, of what was done, of course, the, the Auditor General is um, the, the sort of key party to assessing whether or not um, the reporting framework that is being applied is appropriate. I think that is written in their in their auditing standards, and they have a duty to do that. Um, I would also like to believe that uh, the oversight structures, such as yourself, would would also um, be able to identify these kinds of matters. Um, I, I think, in the absence of a court case, I, I, I think there are other um, monitoring and oversight measures, such as through the PFMA and tabling reports, that would have uh, revealed this. Um, and yes, of course, I, I think just from a professional perspective, as a professional accountant, I think there may also be um, other mechanisms that could be involved from both professional auditors and accountants that that could lead to to sort of a a discovery of these kinds of things. Um, so, so let me leave it there. Thank you very much um, for for that, um, honourable list. Thank you. Chairman, and uh, thank you to the the great audience in front of me here. Um, the RAF, Mr. Chairman, has been bankrupt for many years, and um, 
this change of accounting standards changes that picture somewhat. Stimulant in recent history in the private sector, we've had two examples of misstatements of massive amounts which have brought to the attention of most South Africans and internationally in the world because one is Steinhoff, an international company, in which shareholders throughout the world have lost billions of rand. And the other, of course, is in my home province in Tongot Hewlett. Both were misstatements in the annual financial statements. Calculated to bamboozle the users of those financial statements. And Mr. Chairman, I put it to you that that's exactly the situation with the RAF. That's exactly the situation we have here. And nothing, nothing changes with regard to the liabilities by changing the accounting statements. What does change is the message it sends to the users of the financial statements. That's the only thing that changes. The liabilities don't change. My question then, Mr. Chairman, is from 2019-2020 financial statements to the 2021 financial statements, we move from a position of liabilities for claims of some 316 billion rand to zero. It's a piece of paper. It's not real. If it were real, what the RAF would be saying to us is that those liabilities that we recognized last year, there's a history of those over many years of never coming, becoming cash. They're not liabilities. A liability is something that you will ultimately have to pay for. So what we've been told by changing some accounting standards is that actually those liabilities are not likely to ever materialize. So, Mr. Chairman, this whole process of going to court is an academic exercise to try and find some, some way of, of, of compromising on this. But the reality is the motor accidents have occurred. There is a possibility, a real possibility, of a, of a cash payout taking place. So therefore there is a liability. Unless the RAF can say to us that the possibility of a cash payout has magically over a year disappeared, I don't know why we're in court. What are we trying to achieve? I do not understand what we're trying to achieve. Other than to bamboozle Parliament, which has to ultimately fund this liability. We are the users of that report. I know that the, the, we've had a whole list of users, but taxpayers and others, but we here make the decision about bailouts. And that's what this is about. We would not, not be able to bail out 
these liabilities when they come to fruition. And I believe they will come to fruition. So we're the primary users of these financial statements. What are you trying to achieve by going to court? Change the numbers on the report and say to Parliament, don't worry, there's no real liability here. 316 billion from the previous year to nil in the current year. It's gone. Don't fuss. Won't have to go to the IMF or World Bank or to other lenders to find money to meet these liabilities. Chairman, that's that's my concern. We we spend huge amounts of money going to court. We're spending the AFS's money as as an enjoined party. What are we achieving? I really don't know. We have 16 people who've come down to Cape Town at taxpayer expense, or it will ultimately be, the fund will have to be bailed out at some stage. No doubt stayed in a hotel last night. Probably flew on SAA. Some of you might have been on the plane with me last night. I looked around. I can't remember seeing any of you. What are we achieving by doing this? I just don't understand, Mr. Chairman. Get on with the job. Meet your obligations. Make sure that fraudulent claims are not processed. That's your job. This process of going to court just baffles me, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Uh, the chairperson of RAF. Uh, thank you, Honourable Chairperson. Um, I will start with the numbers, the 16 people that came here. Um, if I recall, at the last meeting, there was a sense that the board was missing. Um, I was on the um, system, but unfortunately, I could not connect because of load shedding in terms of it was baffling, so I couldn't answer. And the other board members were there. So we felt as a board uh, that we all should come here. So the board is here by one person. We would have all preferred to work from home virtually. Uh, it serves us all well. But because of what was said last time, we felt that the board must be seen as the accounting uh, uh, authority. So, so now we're put in the situation that when we're here, it's, it is then said, you know, uh, uh, what to mean. So that's the first issue. The second one um, that has been raised is that the RAF is trying to bamboozle Parliament and we should basically stick to our mandate. This was part of our mandate when we came in as a board. When we came in in December 2019, the minister, in terms of giving our marching orders, gave us some objectives. Those objectives were reduce the legal and administrative costs of this entity. And all the objectives were, by the way, driven towards making this entity uh, customer-centric and ensuring that most of the funding that we receive is paid to claimants rather than everybody else. If we call at that point in time, our budget was $40 billion and $17 billion was administration with $10 billion of that going to lawyers, which is 25%. Um, so that was the first objective. The second one was to review the structure. Thirdly, was review with a, um, a view to enhancing the supply chain management. Um, also, we're asked to implement an ICMS uh, system. Um, lastly, was to reduce the liability. The liability of the RAF 
this electoral liability has been a challenge for the RAF. Uh, it goes back to our predecessor, the board of, of 2016, who also was swamped uh, uh, by this liability and it was growing. It was actually estimated that by the end of last year, this liability would have been 800 billion. So we had to focus on, on reducing uh, uh, this, this liability. Uh, and I will give over to, to, to the chair of, um, of the audit committee to deal with it. Um, we started, of course, with a turnaround strategy to ensure that this organization becomes customer-centric and the money is paid over to, to mainly the, the claimants. And I'll keep on referring to that because everything that is done was towards doing that. So we've changed in terms of the operating model. It is now mainly uh, um, claims administration rather than litigation-based as it was before. We've reduced those numbers and I'm sure you've heard previously from the CEO indicating how those numbers have come down. Um, this has all been part of the work that, that, that we've done. We have reviewed the medical charts, um, and I'm sure you would know how that was also uh, presenting problems and was a major cost to the, to the RAF. We actually have calculated the new medical charts. So, so, Chair, all the work that what is done was actually towards uh, fulfilling our mandate, even in terms of uh, this, this liability itself. We have worked over the years, I mean, for over the last two years that we're in, 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 um, in office to reduce the, the, this issue. It is not a situation that will come back to by the board. We're very clear of that. And I think in terms of that actual liability, I want to give over to the to the chair of the audit committee to just explain to the to the to this committee what we have done and why we have done it and why we believe that it will not come back to bite uh, um, the the what call the the committee and we're not playing around with with accounting numbers here. Thank you, chair. Okay. Let's just let them finish, and you, I'll take your point over. I know where you're going. Let's let's let's. Let's let them finish the response. Yeah, then you'll take a follow-up. Continue. Thanks very much, Chair. Um, thanks, honourable members. Um, when I first joined the board of the Road Accident Fund, uh, obviously I saw it, and I was very worried about my potential liability being a board member, and that scared me. Then when I looked into the list of liabilities, and you see... 10 biggest top firms of attorneys owing at least a billion each. And I asked myself, how do I, as an attorney, manage to accumulate a debt of uh, um, an amount owing by Road Accident Fund to be a billion rand? I run the practice and I've been in practice, and for me to have the Road Accident Fund owing a billion rand would entail an enormous amount of work. And Road Accident Fund pays claimants. People who have been in an accident. Not every accident comes into the road accident fund. Out of 10 accidents, some may be caused by negligence, some are paid by the insurance companies, but they all decide through various third parties to bring it to the road accident fund. So I keep on assessing how do we stop this? What are we going to do? How are we going to value our liability properly? And then if this four says we need an actuarial evaluation, take all the accidents, uh, value it. But the actuaries don't look at the actual breakdown of the accident. 
what is fraudulent, what is fictitious, what is overstated, who is making an industry out of the road accident fund claim. So you start breaking it down. Right. Just one second. Uh, you see what the board is doing. You are throwing us into a hearing now. Okay, so apologies, yeah. And the substantive material issue is the change in accounts. That's, that's, that's why we're here. Because now what you're doing, when I have to now have the hearing, which we have suspended until we have gotten past this hurdle. So can I, I, I think that that's not assisting us. The, the internet. Honorable uh, Swartz, and then I see the deputy chair of the board once you've concluded, sir. Honorable Swartz, um, you'll will, you will finish after and then we'll come. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Chair, I just wanted to say what you're saying that I am please pleading that the board does not deviate from the agenda we're here for today. I don't think that we all can come and sit your chair and we are not getting responses on what we are ready for here, which is the change of policy. And in relation to our concern that you are a custodian of a report and that there is a court matter. Now, when Honorable Lee says there are 16 people here, there is nothing wrong with that because he is commenting that we should not be sitting here in the first place. Because in the first place, the matter should not be even in court. When the first presentation was done, I sat here asking myself that, what are we really doing here today? After the AG's office gave its presentation, I asked myself many times. So I am happy that um, the Honorable Deputy Minister, Honorable Chikunga, is here because the board must not even try. Honorable Deputy Minister, and defend themselves. When we are sitting in these scope meetings, it's because we want to hear the real substance and the real issues and real motivations of what they want to say. But if anyone in the form of board members, especially the CEO or the chairperson of the board, wants to come in front of SCOPA and give us lessons on what the road accident fund is and what it does. We know that as SCOPA. In fact, we've got the presentations, we've gone through them. What we want to hear here is that where we are seated at now, and why are we here today? That is what we want to hear. But if the board members want to give us their credentials and for how many years they've worked where and done what, in relation to um, billion rent and what rents and how they can do accounting. We're not going to accept that honorable chair and honorable deputy minister. Can 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 the board please stick to what we're here for today? Oops. Thank you, Chair. All right, let's get the, the chair of order to conclude his statement and the deputy chair of the board. But the substantive material question out of honorable list is to what end? That's the issue. The cortex, that is fundamentally the nub of the issue. We, we, we see because, as I said earlier, this committee seated here 
aligns itself with the tabled order to board. We accept it from the agent. But we have given due consideration, rightly or wrongly, to this court action. In essence, what should be happening is that we should be conducting a hearing. Honorable members prepared. Uh, who else is honorable? Is it you, Honorable Hatem? We have delegated Honorable Hatem and Honorable Men to handle your hearing on our behalf on the issues in their entirety, including but not limited to the disclaimer. So when you start getting into the details, I can assure you, those two members will then want to assume or take it that, okay, let's deal with the content. So I think let's go to the, to the, to the core question, the nub of the question, to what end? Because that clarifies for us, uh, and including with us. So I knew exactly where she was going when she had the end, right? But you, uh, Madam Deputy Chair, just stand by and the Uber was okay, then you come in. Sir? Thanks, apologies, Honorable uh, Members. Okay, based on what I've said, is that's why the Road Accident Fund looked at the claim and looked at establishing the criteria for establishing a claim. And that made it a lot easier for us to determine what our accounting liability is and what the values of claims should be. And essentially, that was the difference of opinion between ourselves and the Auditor General. The Audit Committee did ask the Auditor General and um, upfront, before the audit started, please ensure that you look at our claims values, please look at our accounting policies, and let's address these matters quite early. It's unfortunate. It was only addressed towards the end, and that was the result of the of the uh, unfortunate the, the court case. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Madam Deputy Chair. Thank you, Chair. Um, I'm going to come to, uh, my first issue is just to ask, because I saw various stakeholders presented today. The Road Accident Fund has a regulator, and I see the regulator was not invited, so I just want to know why was the, the, our regulator not invited, which is the provincial authority. That's one. Two, the interaction with the ASB started in 2014. The board that first cleared with this matter of the accounting authority started in 2016. In our view, it's now taken them eight years to then say we will then provide a standard to you at the end of December 2022. Thirdly, there is no government in the whole world where it owes its own citizens, or maybe maybe owing its citizens or its voters money due to a low liability kind of process, this low liability that we, we then had to tackle. So it's just something that I just wanted to just also bring to, 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 to everyone's attention. Our mandate was deal with the long-term liability. The, the reality of the matter is it started in 2016. ASB was engaged in 2014, and through that whole process, it's only now today we hear in this presentation that they're only included after eight years. So I just want to understand why has it taken them so long? Okay. But no, 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 no. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet, tweet. We invited the entities and departments that 
in our view, are of a material bearing to the matter before the committee. <clears throat> you are disclaimed. Our primary stakeholder in you being disclaimed is the AG. Because the dispute is after the fact, it's secondary. You, are, you can't dispute something that's not official. Right? So the disclaimer is on the table. We need to hear from the AG how they arrived at that. That's why. The list of stakeholders is long and varied. There's a stakeholder in the middle of the street who we are owing money to. We call them here. So it, 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 it's just a matter of what we felt was the material aging ASP. We've got the SIU here as well. They are a constant feature of uh, our work. Two, the ASP, in my understanding, has made a pronouncement on this matter prior. 2014 and 2016. So it's not a new determination. It's been made already. Well, they say they don't give you know, opinion, but the determination in one way or the other has been made. Your auditor has made a determination. The accountant general has made a determination. So I, 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 I think that the issue is the 2022 outlook is in itself secondary. Uh, again, your mandate on the liabilities. If you draw us there, then you must have the hearing, which means you must deal with your disclaimer. I'm trying by all means to save you from a hearing. For now until we have dealt with this issue. So don't draw us to the liability. About a government that doesn't owe its people. Well, then the question in this case, would we blame for that? You. <laughs> that one is at your doorstep. Those people there that you are talking about, on their behalf, here, we want to work us. So let's 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 not go to the material substantive issues which emanate out of the audit outcome. Because we don't even have your annual reporting of that mistake. What we have is the AG's audit reducer. So whatever issues you raised here, we would not have excited you don't go down here in that way. So <clears throat> just yes. How about the approach uh, on, on this one? So colleagues, um I, I the CEO have noted your hands stand by honorable Swaz and Honorable Tolash, Honorable Swami. But you know you you have honorable family and I wanna ask you questions. I think that the colleagues just want to react to what has happened. Um, Honorable Fanninian is next, and Honorable Hatterbegul Street. So let's finish with these follow-ups. Honorable Swartz. No, Chair, mine is just to say that uh, nobody who's responding here 
is taking responsibility for the court case. Now, we don't want to get into a situation as if we're in a hearing. Because ordinarily, my question would be, who filed the court case? When did you decide to file the court case? Why and why did you take that decision? And it emanated from where? Because Zonke Bonke, Nyakuluma, Padanisho, Utuwai, Nyakot. Which I think the chair is alluding on that. He's uh, avoiding doing what we are supposed to do. To give you a chance to speak. Of which you are not doing. So maybe the direct question is, the next person who speaks must really tell us why you went to court because you are not taking responsibility for the court case much. All of you that are talking. Thank you, Chief. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Chairperson, first and foremost, I really want to appeal to the board and the entire delegation. If you are not multiple or you are not in a spot where you're supposed to be and paid for that, you can't come and tell us that when they were not audible, you said they are not there, so I brought all of them 16 years so that you can see their faces. I guess in an element of just being disrespectful. Maybe it's how I heard it. You said in the last meeting you don't see them. So this time I thought I must brought 16 of them here so that you can see. And that talks to the very matter that you are talking about. The taxpayers' money has been spent in a manner that people have this I don't care kind of an attitude. I have a problem with that. I have a serious problem with that response, Chair, for, a, for the responsible person that is coming from. 16 people brought here with all honorable Umasambani articulate hotels, etiquette. Because we want to see their faces, which he will have. I don't think that's the case. That response is so unfortunate. It is not acceptable. Chair, this is your meeting. This is Copa's meeting. Who comes here is being determined by the person who convened the meeting. I don't think there's a time where somebody will come and ask, where's everybody? I can't hear you talk to the attitude of this board. I'm very worried. That people come instead of responding to what we are seated here for, we are being told that we should have invited Jake and Jill. Otherwise, that is very, again, disrespectful. You can't at any given time determine who should be invited in a meeting that we did not convene anyway. Especially when you got time to ask a question in a very professional way. 
is everybody that I like invited in that meeting so that we can all go together. Because for you, it should be people that you like because you are not the convener of that meeting. So if the people that you like are not invited, then you ask a question in quite professional way that my friends are not here, why are not invited? Maybe you could have get a professional response. But for the the, the, the deputy chair of the board to come and ridicule us and ask why others are not here. I don't think it's also it's acceptable. It, it borders to disrespect. Thank you, Chair. I, I, I go along with what Mazamban spoke about. The bottom line. <laughs> we must get the, the, the bottom line. But lastly, I guess there's precedence here. Said and the people who have said that the presidents don't seem to want to own up, maybe still gonna sit and listen. Uh, for that reason, I would want to hear from, I know AJ has been explaining to us for the longest time, but Cheshire, my fear here is that within a very short space of time, I'm going to, they are going to be overwhelmed by other institutions like that, maybe wanting to go the same route. Are we going to sit here, sit like a gig over here, I've created this precedent. I know for a fact that they indicated that there's a process that is unfolding of which Raf undermined deliberately. So I just want to hear, maybe check in future, I really would want to hear whether the department that talks to monitoring, when does it come, how does it feature in these incidences? We are sitting in a country where the corruption is rife and it's been seen and touched. People of this country are losing hope to the sitting government. Politicians are, are, are irrelevant in trying to explain. Officials are the perpetrators of that corruption. I wonder where does the Department of Monitoring come in here? Just uh, to stop things before they come to this extent. Because maybe in the next 10 years, everybody or 50, everybody will be creative in wanting to do as he or she wants, but for now, stick to what is expected of you because you may case as I do. Because all this breathes corruption. And why not to explain it in any other different way? Where white Mazaman is just articulated on the difficulties that the rough is going through, and rough just decide to take a, a shortcuts and cut corners and do the worst and come before us and be extremely arrogant by posture and by way of mouth. So I'm saying, Chair, I guess this is always the institution of Simeway, and the deputy minister is here. Is it possible that a minister can sit and outline and that talks to the undermining of the, all the laws that govern the, the oversight? Is it possible? 
I would believe officials will take instructions by word of mouth that automatically breaks all the law and undermine all the system that exists for more than 10 years. Is, is that possible, Chair? Can the Deputy Minister please explain to us? Because the, the owner of the said the, the Minister told us. Is it, is it the case now the ministers are lost to, their, to themselves? Is it that possible? That's the question in order I have. Thank you very much, Chair. Sorry for taking that. Daughter, go to the Hold on time. Please just note all that has been said, um, Honorable Fanlin. Thank you very much, Chair. I don't want to be repetitious, but I really do want to agree with my colleagues, and in particular with the Honorable Lees, who I think very eloquently put the issues. Listening to all of this, um, my concern is why has this gone to court? I mean, I would argue that this is a completely premature matter. It's not right for a court decision. And I'm trying to work out what it is, what decision is sought. It's not suitable for the courts to give an accountancy decision. I mean, this is a very technical matter. And I really cannot see why other methods haven't been followed to try to resolve this. And I really want to echo what my colleagues have said. It also seems like a real paper exercise by the RLF. It also concerns me that we have so many of them here in Cape Town to discuss what is essentially a dispute that just never, ever has gone to this point. It really just seems like an amazing waste of finances, of times, and of a way of trying to evade unfavorable results. And my big issue is what are they hoping the courts are going to actually find? Because I do not think that this is a suitable, um, it's not a suitable venue or a suitable um, forum for making this kind of decision. The quite frankly should never have gone this far. Thank you. Honorable Hattava. Thanks, Chair. Indeed, we are on uncharted waters, Chair. But the, the, the decision for the committee to have a physical sitting was for us to to assist us in understanding where are we and what led to where we are at this point in time. Secondly, there has been presentation, statements made in relation to other entities. I would have loved to go straight, direct to the issues of the liability and ask where is 330 million? What happened to things? But before I could delve into those matters, there are certain aspects that I would like clarity on to understand whether or not the decision taken by the entity is justified. The second aspect is to get an understanding of which we don't know much about. Question 
whether or not AG has followed all the necessary procedure in issuing the audit based on what the entity has highlighted to us. The third aspect was to also understand from the standard center, which is the ASB, whether or not your directives and standards given to these entities are they authoritative as you have claimed that it is not. We want clarity on those issues. We clear that and then get an understanding whether or not you have exhausted all the dispute resolution mechanism in place. Is your decision to go to court justifiable? Let us appreciate why we're here. And appreciate that all of you that are here, you possess knowledge, information, and answers to our question, of which, under normal circumstances, we, we wouldn't have delved into those issues. The fourth aspect, I want to have an understanding and the position of the executive authority. What guidance have you provided in relation to this matter? Let me start, Chair, with the Auditor General. In your presentation, quite correctly, you've indicated that the audit based on international standards, and in this case, the standard setters is ASP. They've given you uh, a directives. And in issuing your audit, you followed processes and all the applicable procedures. You did not indicate what are those processes you have followed, given that uh, Ralph is disputing the issuing of that audit, that it is not in line in terms of the normal process and procedure as issued. If you could explain to us the relationship between issuing your audit and the obligation or certain points that ought to have been considered by Ralph in your final issue of the audit. The, the second aspect, uh, I want clarity from um, ASB. There was a, a directive issued on the 30th of September, chain. Uh, which clearly indicates um, there's an annexure that says the table below outlines the list of recently issued IPSOS and IR standards that should not be applied by entity, either by directly adopting them or using them to formulate accounting policy. And IPSOS 42 is part of those uh, uh, listed. The board did not support aspect of both the insurance and general approach in IPSOS 42. The application of the general approach to some scheme locally may not result in a fair presentation of the scheme liability. As a result, IPSOS 42 should not be applied. Whether or not that on its own is not an authoritative directive to this entity. I'm raising this question because Ralph says to us in their presentation 
had ASB indicated in the letter that what they issued was authoritative, Ralph would not have proceeded with change in accounting policy. So I want you to explain uh, and give us a sense whether or not these directives that have been issued and your engagement with Ralph from January 2021 till to date, letters issued to them, that on its own does not serve as an authoritative instruction to say to them, please discontinue with what you have started. Because they are indicating willingness of stopping a layman person like me when I read this directive chain. It clearly explained that someone had to take a pause to say, look, here, based on what the standard setters are saying, there is no way we could continue. Yet, 2022, despite all these letters, Ralph went ahead and approached court. In your presentation, you are saying you could have stopped if what was issued was authoritative. Now, Ralph should, I mean, ASB, please explain to us if this communication and correspondences are not authoritative enough for someone to stop what they've started. From where I am at this current juncture, I don't think it's justifiable for court to be approached when all these role players have indicated their position in relation to what you have adopted. I also want the Office of the um, Accountant General to explain at what point did they issue um, their final verdict or concur with Auditor General to say indeed what the Auditor General has proposed or recommended that it's not in line with the set standard is indeed correct. Have you on the 4th of December issued your outcome in terms of the dispute resolution processes? Ralph is saying to us, the process has not been completed. AG, on the other hand, is saying to us, on the 4th of December 2021, the process was completed and there is nothing in law that legally prohibits them from issuing their um, audit. I'm raising this because part of our mandate, powers and function as this committee is to be we are compelled by law that we must consider any audit issue to whether the executive authority or any other public entity. The audit report was issued. We want to get a sense when we continue uh, considering that audit report, everything else has been done in accordance to the prescript as it pertains to the legislation that governs those public entities based on the dispute that has arisen. We want to deal with the matters at hand, but we need to clarify those aspects that seem to be uh, bringing uncertainty in terms of whether or not procedure has been followed. Thank you, Chairperson. 
Honorable Manka, our last one on this one, and then we'll go to Ref, AG, ASB at the hands up. You'll all get an opportunity to respond, and then we'll conclude uh, on, on this matter. Yeah, we'll give you the last opportunity after everybody has spoken to make your remarks. Thank you, Chair. Chair, the memo shared with us from RAF is, in fact, very problematic to what the Deputy Chair of the Board is saying. That we have been engaging it's a, um, ASB since 2014, and ASB has never gotten back to us. Meantime, the memo says ASB has been part of the uh, formulation of this particular accounting standard. And then I find it very difficult that the, the board and the memo, which I presume it's, they should be owning up to it, does not say the same thing. And ASB, on the other hand, says that this particular standard is not included in the standards, as Honorable Adebe has uh, now explained. Then my question becomes, who exactly advised RAF to go to court? To go and claim a standard which the Auditor General, according to the standards of auditing, which are prescribed for the country and Auditor General is utilizing in this regard are outside the scope of the Auditor General. So if they are outside the scope of the Auditor General, the OHG says I'm against it and then the memo and what you are saying is not speaking to what the ASB is saying. Who exactly advised you to go to court? And on what basis are you challenging? Are you enforcing a standard that we do not have as a country? And therefore, how are we going to deal with the matters of auditing that those particular facts, if ever that standard cannot be measured by anybody which is in this country assigned to oversee the audits of the public funds? I want to understand that. Thank you. Okay. So let's do this. <clears throat> We're going to go to RAF with its material components, with all the issues that are there, the National Treasury, AG, ASB, DM. Uh, yeah. So in that, in that sequence, the chairs report will delegate accordingly until they've exhausted all the issues they put to them, um, and then we will move on in the sequence, which I've highlighted. The, the issue here in all the responses that we must get is that, let me put it this way, legal or, uh, yeah, let me, let me give it an open-ended outlook. On what basis was the accounting standards changed? To what end is the court action? And to on what basis? Uh, yeah, what basis? To what end? That question remains. And why are you in court? 
Because there's never a comment about the court action uh, at the end. So in everything you respond to, that the nub of the issue is there. Uh, Madam Chair, Thank you, uh, Chairperson. Uh, the issue on the basis, I will ask the audit chair to deal with. Um, in terms of the decisions, let me start with that. The board is the one that took the decision to change the accounting policies after the process had been followed. Um, the second one. I want to know details like higher process. The process that got followed, I've asked the CEO to, to, to deal with that, but in terms of the, and I'm talking about the, the uh, what do you call it, the, the consultation process uh, that eventually led us to also take this, uh, uh, um, the decision in terms of um, consultation with ASB, etc. The decision to go to court was also taken by the board, because for us, we felt that there were material issues at hand. Um, I think our colleagues from the other uh, entities have touched on them, but I would like to also touch on in terms of what the issues. The issue, what, what, what is the nature of REF's business? Is it insurance like or is it a social benefit fund? That's the first one. The second one was who determines the accounting policy um, of the entity? Is it the entity itself or is it the entity? Thirdly, it is what is the triggering event for liability of the REF? Um, is it the accident itself when, when the accident happens? Or is it when, as Ralph says, the assessment has been determined in terms of the liability? And that's our, our position. Um, so those are the main issues. And of course, then it is the role. What is the role of the ASP? Um, the chair, as you sit here, and I think that that's part of our challenge, is that we ourselves, like yourselves, we have a legal opinion which said to us, we actually should not come here. We decided that that is not the best thing. We should come here. The reason for that was that the matter is still under uh, um, um, judicial consideration, certificate, and we therefore put ourselves in problems easily and the recourse would then be in contempt of court. So that, I'm just giving that as a background, that's why my colleagues and I are having the problem in terms of answering some of these issues, because some of them are differences in terms of what AG looks at the process they follow, how we look at it, and those are the, at, the, at the time. So we can't start talking to uh, what is included in the affidavits, and these issues are included in affidavits. So I'm just indicating that this is the problem we find ourselves in, in terms of responding uh, uh, to the problems that are raised uh, today, because even the processes, they are, uh, 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 there's a contention around that issue, and it is uh, um, in court. I'll then move over to the... Just, let me just add to that, because material, you then the kind of meeting prepared the subsequently the outcomes. Um, the opinion notwithstanding, the legislature, 
is an arm of the state, which is it's got its own powers, functions, and responsibilities. Deferring to the judicial processes we have is out of respect. It's not a must. We are well within our constitutional right to continue with the hearing, notwithstanding what happens in another arm of the state. I thought I should just clarify that. that uh, This parliament can subpoena. So in the event that, so I just want to say that the legal advice that you had would have been given would have been misleading in the speech that you gave. The subjudicate rule does not apply to parliamentary process. So I just thought I should clarify that so that whatever interactions we have moving forward, we are at liberty within the rules, within the powers and privileges, within the constitution. Even if there is a court process, we can run a process here on our own. We defer to courts out of respect. We can make a determination in this parliament which is binding on yourselves. So I just thought I should caution that that thinking that it must not characterize the outlook of ref. It's interacting with us. Uh, but it is now to explain the kind of interaction that we have had. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it there. I think it just clarify. I just want to clarify. This it's, it's, it's basic elementary politics one on one. There are three arms of the state: executive the judiciary and the legislature. There's not one. They exist to have checks and balances amongst themselves. That's why parliament elects the president and so on and so forth. So I just, I just because you see, it goes to that other dilemma we had in the house, which I won't go to. So we, we, we're not a secondary party in the construct of the state. So I, I would urge the RAF not to engage us on that basis. And in any case, what you say here can't be transplanted from here, then used against you in court. Can't, by law. It can't. Precisely for that reason, that what you say here does not form part and parcel of another process elsewhere. You are protected by the rules. Don't worry. The rules are on inside. So I thought I should clarify that. So I think it clarifies it easily for so we can move on. Chair, I also want to add that the question as it relates to the process following issue now, what is host to the AG, not to and who were the role players that ought to have played 
certain role in you finalizing your project and has to have those role players been afforded an opportunity to play the role in an event where they have and they did not, what then becomes the process in concluding your audit? That question is specifically directed to the AG. Yeah, and the AG will respond to yes. the processes they followed. I thought because the substantive nature of the questions were to have the chair must take lead and delegate to her team until she's exhausted, they've exhausted rough questions and then we'll go to each. But I thought I should punctuate and form an explanation which puts things in, in the context of this issue. Madam Chair? Thank you, Chair. I will just delegate to the CEO and later on to the Chair of Audit when comes back. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Chair. Um, I think, let me preface by saying I, I'm going to work more on this uh, submission that we've made because I think much of the answers are, will come there. Um, the difficulty that we face as both the executive and the accounting authority of the Road Accident Fund has been to change a system that has been long there. As we say, there are historic issues. And in navigating the space of historic issues, of course, you go back to what is the basis on which decisions were taken that resulted in what you find in front of you. So what we found in front of us was a 320 billion actual liability that was called an accounting liability. Then the minister says, uh, the, the, the instructions from the minister says, there is a big crime or the liability that is exponential. The April 2014, it is expected that this liability is going to grow to be the biggest liability in South Africa because at this point you are number two after S1. So that's the instruction. Go investigate this liability, tell us what you see and what you find, and in the process bring mitigating measures in this liability. So what do we then do? We go back to 1314 to see what has happened. In 1814, we then discover that there is a letter coming from the accountants that has The letter is instructive in the sense that it says if reform must be applied or must be considered in the application in insurance like, so I'm just paraphrasing, but that's what it was termed, insurance like. Uh, entities of the state that applies. I must stop here and emphasize, Chair. The question of whether RAF is a social benefit or not is tried. It's tried because the 
application of IFRS 4 only happens if you can't apply GRAP 19. GRAP 19 specifically excludes social benefits, which is why in 2014 the advice was that there is no other standard that applies. Apply a standard that is relatively closer, which is IFRS 4, which is the accounting for insurance contracts. So we look at this, we ask the AG. AG, we see this sitting in front of us. What does this mean? They say, no, this is a directive coming from the accounting standards board. We then said, how do we deal with this thing, given the fact that, well, in our view, we are not an insurer and we do not think that the accounting for insurance contracts applies to us. The answer was simply, it is the instructions from the ASB, go and talk to the ASB. In detail, that's exactly what we did. January 2021, we go and speak to the ASB. Amazon, we left that meeting very embarrassed, by the way, because the ASB simply said, the CEO at the time, I think it was Mr. Swartu, said, but how do you change an accounting policy on the basis of a letter? We simply do not do that. It's either it's a standard or it's a directive or at least a guideline. We do not issue letters in as a standard set. Simply said, and which is why we are saying, honorable member asks why we said we would have stopped. If they then said our letter is authoritative, stick to the letter. That's why we say we would have just continued with what we had, because that's what the AG said we must do. Go to the ASB, talk to them. In finalization, we then say to them, that's fine what you are saying, and then they say to us, apply GRAM 3. There are two things in paragraph 13 that you can only change the accounting policy for. One is if it's a requirement in terms of the standard of GRAM. Two is if it provides reliable and relevant in your view now. And this is where they said, this is the role of management. They, they effectively said, uh, auditors don't get involved in matters of accounting policy determination. They refer us to graph 3, paragraph 8. We leave that meeting, we say, can we have this in writing? They said, of course. They give it to us in writing. We leave. Now, we have, on the 1st of February, then we receive this letter that confirms this discussion. If the ASB had said at the time, don't even consider himself for you in they never said that you see to the letter of the 1st of February. So we then go and start the process. Firstly, we leave there, as I say, embarrassed because we changed an accounting policy on the basis of a letter and we are told we can't do that. So it means the decision taken in 2013-14 was wrong because it was on the basis of a letter. We leave, we start this process. So we then engage the process, the normal process of accounting policy change. 
because we want to arrive at a point where it gives relevant and reliable financials. So we look at this. At the time, Jay, the other question that we're asking ourselves is, what is an obligating event? An obligating event where you are saying, at this point, I have civil liability. The argument from the AG side was, the obligating event is the accident. And we say, indeed, it can be. Because at that point of the accident, there's a lot of other things that must happen before we assess and concede liability. Section 17 is very clear. By the way, if you look at our own act, uh, and this is the part where we deal with in 2.9 of this memo that we've written, it says the object of the fund shall be the payment of compensation in accordance with this act for loss and damages. That means just say payment of compensation. So this is where we get this mandate that says the multiple things that happens before that and liability eventuates. And then, not only that, if you read our section 17, section 18, there are certain requirements that you must meet. And this is the part, I think, probably in our explanations of last time, when the chair said, we're inviting these people, we should have said, chair, maybe we'll invite the major authority. Because in terms of section uh, 4.3 of our own act, uh, or in terms of our own act, our regulator and the provincial authority. But the provincial authority is also instructive in who we are. They clarify that very clearly in Directive 1. Paragraph 2.3.3 of the Directive 1 that is issued in terms of the financial supervision of the Road Accident Fund Act stipulates clearly the following. It says that in assessing the viability and sustainability of RAF and its compliance with the provision of social insurance acts, identified under paragraph 2.2, consideration will be given to what is instructive there is status and nature of RAF as a public entity that is fundamentally a social security fund. So you would have seen where the OAG comes and says, but we're actually not a social benefit fund. But our regulator says we are. So, in following this process, we then look at all the things of the event. And remember, we are directed by Graph 3, Paragraph 8, that says we shall exercise our judgment. It says management shall exercise its judgment. In determining the accounting points. That's exactly what we did share. And I think that is the process that we then followed. Then, in looking at this, of course, there is a big difference between the way we look at ourselves and the way AG looks at us. AG thinks we are an insurer. We are saying we are not an insurer. The ASB says people that apply insurance like you. Insurance like is not defined in any legislature or any 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 of the prescription. Insurance like is not defined in. But what is important, Chair, 
is also what you find in the application of standards for graph three. And this is where we went to the framework. The Yes, I'm, I'm not interrupting, but I'm seeking to take information. In applying your judgment, is that outside the standard as set by the ASB? Definitely not. All right. Definitely not. So whatever judgment you 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 use is confined. Definitely not. And then I'll go through quickly on that because. Paragraph 8 is very clear. Was that after the issuance by the minister? Yes, the, the minister has issued grab The minister has, has issuance by the minister that yes. change yes. Uh, is accommodated to the yes. uh, uh, ministerial determination. Definitely change. Definitely change. Definitely honorable member. The part that deals with that is graph three. So we're going to specifically we're applying graph three. We are not applying ipsas for the We are applying graph three. So in applying graph three, you at paragraph eight. You read it together with paragraph nine. You read it together with paragraph ten. Paragraph uh, eleven and twelve also gives you what you should do. So. In looking at that, you start with that process that says the ethics you can use is judgment in developing and applying an accounting policy. Now we use that. Then the second part says, in applying this judgment, this is, uh, I think, paragraph nine. In applying this judgment, this is what you must do. It says, then the third one says, the, the next one says, if it does not uh, go against a standard of graph, or the framework. Those are the two things. So you go through the standard of graph. There's no standard of graph for social benefits because that's why we are in in 19. We do not belong to 19, and therefore we must determine our own accounting rules. Then you go to the part that says is it against the graph framework or the the, the standard? No. Is it against the framework? No. Once that happens, then it tells. It even goes. It's very instructive. It says. In descending order, you are allowed in applying that to look at other standard centers. Right? It says pronouncement. It doesn't even say standards. It says pronouncements. And this is what we did. In applying that very standard, what we then went on, it says, you look at this, it starts, it says in descending order. It starts being. In brackets, it says other things, but this gives us B, and it's in the same thing. The next one is International Accounting Standards Board, which is where it first comes from. Right? Yes. My, my train of thought is saying to me, you as you as well are saying you followed a particular process and that you are right. That's of the details of things that you indicated in your paper, you are saying from the round point of view, we followed the process, we had a consultation, we arrived at a determination of the decision, we are right, we disagree with ASP, we disagree with AG, and we disagree with um, OG. 
Not necessarily change. From the point of the OAG and the point of ASB, not necessarily. And I want to clarify. Right, it's because ultimately, I think yes. we need to follow sooner yeah. and otherwise yeah. we will be. So then the AG must so, now come in and respond yeah. to yes. the legislative list you read. So, yes. So, Chair, we then are sitting with this. We fast track this to April. The board takes a decision. We present. We take a decision. The board then says, uh, We want assurance that you follow the right thing. We hire an international accounting firm that we said this thing. You just even got an international expert. They look at this thing. They say, One of the questions is it follow graph? Did you follow all the processes? Yes. And they then agree. That that's what we must do. The board then changes the accounting. Who's that company? So that was hired. Who's the company that was hired? Uh, international expert. Peter BC. Then we we finish the board has adopted the accounting policy. Then it's applied. Once it gets applied, the then the AG comes back with a with a, an outcome that says, well. We don't agree with the application of this in determination of accounting policy. And what we are saying is that the first part they said that um, the UFO must use IFRIS 4 and that, that they don't agree with us that we are a social benefit, something like that. So we then say, and oh, they said, but there is a letter that is authoritative that is from the ASB. We write that to the ASB. We say, can we clarify? And the ASP was very simple. They just said to us, as a standard setter, we are not supposed to give advice on matters of accounting and its application. That goes against our money. That's what they told us. But then they also said something very funny to better. They said, we do not issue exclusion list. Meaning we do not issue something that is excluded. It's in writing to us. And we were told that there is nothing authoritative about their letters. So we go back, we say, clarify this, they clarify. Of course, they make comments about the fact that Ipsas for it has got issue, but in earnest, there's nowhere where we divert until that time. Now, I want to address the issue of the letter of the September, because I think it's also important. The letter of September is not a directive. It is a letter. We were told in January this is not uh, authoritative. But it doesn't also come to us. Remember, we went specifically to ASP. We asked, they wrote us two letters. In those letters, you will not find anywhere where they say you can be successfully true. They still remain that management must be the one that determines the accounting policy. So that's what I'm saying. When the ASP comes, it is only in December January, that we get this letter, but we also get it from the OAG. We don't get this letter directly. Uh, it didn't come. Uh, and I think uh, the CFO can come and clarify that. But, uh, so, so when the letter says to all chief, uh, uh, to all CFOs and all entities, you're not including yourself as part of all entities. We simply do not receive it. No, no, I'm, I'm saying upon, upon, I'm sorry, so that was a word. Yeah. <coughs> Because we're going to end up in gray areas of technicalities. We receive the dream to save it. Watch that, watch that, watch that. Watch it. And, uh, 
in the what I'm asking on the record. In your view, you are right or wrong. We have already determined our county policy chair. There is no letter from the ASB. But that's that not my change. question. That's not my question. We are correct. That's what we are, we are correct to get. And you said you have satisfied yourselves that you have followed your process. That's what was because otherwise it's going to become a word that of which yes it might be important to have the discussion. So we can look at the numbers. Uh, I the the ban on yes, which was sent by email um, from before uh, received and it's always so here in so I think ultimately the question was um, was the process followed to arrive at this change and the question is yes we believe you are correct um, and the substantive question is we go to court to what end that is the issue. Chair. Mr. Chairman, I, if I may come sure, I think the same step was my original question, and, and I have come to the conclusion, having listened to what's being said, that the, the objective by ministerial decree, and I, I hesitate to believe that the minister actually wanted this kind of outcome, but I haven't spoken to the minister, was get rid of this liability. Get rid of it. So instead of dealing with it substantially on a case-by-case basis, we go in and find an accounting solution to take it off the books. And so we can say to the minister, we've achieved your mandate. That's that's the only conclusion I can come to, Mr. Chairman, um, having listened to, to what people are saying. And the process followed and which accounting standard should be applied. It's, it's all academic and got to do with justifying um, getting rid of this liability, which was the mandate given to me by the minister, and I will achieve that in my turn. So, all right. Um, can you have an answer to the spoil? I want the answers. Uh, of course, the... Uh, Comprehensive set of questions and comments. Um, can I momentarily exercise a benevolent dictator and suppress you temporarily? And then we'll come back when they have done with the answers of all the sectors, because I think they're important. The SB, I know for a while now, has been itching, and I hope Lord Shedding. Does not compromise, right? See, or you wrapping up? Yeah, I was just wrapping up, Chair. I think the the part that I wanted to wrap up on uh, is the issue around the OEG. The the most important aspect uh, is uh, is found in their um, the, the 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 slide number three. Slide number three of the presentation is very instructive because it will tell you why we end up in court. We go through all these processes. We agree to an alternative dispute resolution mechanism led by the OAG. We are the only ones that present ourselves with an alternative dispute resolution mechanism because AG just simply does not present itself. It's us that reflect the matter. And what then happens is, as we are looking towards the 31st of December, 
which was the now agreed date on 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 the issue of this uh, uh, report, and we have been engaged with the OAG and they have not finalized. That's the only disconcluded without any process being finalized on the alternative dispute resolution. They say there, they say, while we're looking at the issue of the obligating event, then the audit was finalized. And this comes after a letter of the 2nd of December where the AG simply writes and says, conclude by the 6th, we are finalizing. In the process chair, at the key, you will see it in our minutes of, of the the board and the minutes of the uh, audit committee was that the audit office was closing for December on the 17th of December. So they wanted to conclude. There were still processes between myself as the CEO and the DG of Treasury to finalize certain things. We had a meeting on the 2nd of December. We were supposed to meet again on the 6th. And by the time we did that, the AG just simply finalized without finalizing the process. So I think that must be clarified. Uh, well, thanks, Jim. I think I've touched on all the other things. Others are already in the uh, explanation. Thanks. AG? Um, no, thanks, Chair. I'll, I'll give my to start on the process and I'll close, Chair, because I'm the no, one that's. Stand by, sorry, the referee, just now. Thank you, Chair. Um, I just wanted to add to what Jesse Aaron said. In our engagement with the OAG, um, I think Aaron, you'll see it in the, in the memo that we provided. There was quite a, a bit of back and forth between ourselves and the, and the Office of the Accountant General. And we had had very fruitful discussions with them um, in November and in December regarding the changes in the obligating event. And they were actually in agreement with us that the obligating event did not be the um, accident date. Um, and I think they made clear in the presentation as well. So we were hopeful in that we could find each other between ourselves, the OAG and the, and the AG. On the other side, the OAG had a discussion with the AG technical team, and in their communications with us, they were also saying, you know, that they were making, they were getting there with the AG's technical team. So we were quite happy about the fact that the AG had just proceeded in, in finalising their report then in December and visualising the, the OAG. And in fact, I just wanted to put in on the record as well that it levels a final report or outcome from the OAG's office because it was interrupted by the finalisation of the AG um, of their report. I think we must be careful of the language that you use in terms of accusations. So you say that because of pressure, sort of takes us in another direction. So I think let's also just watch our words very carefully um, in terms of what is, 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 is being said uh, here. And the the AG in taking to Parliament explains, if you recall, colleagues, in the ACT, there's, there's an explanation about how we arrive at tabling as well. Right, Madam Chair? Thank you, Chair. We just indulgence when it asked for the, the chair of the audit committee when he was out. Thank you. 
Thanks very much, Anand um, Puche. Um, the, the, the question that John Fender had asked about the swiping of the debt, um, that obviously is a shock to everyone. But when one puts in the seizures, if this force is, you take a full, the accidents that happen, you value it, you bring it into the county level. That's fine, no problem with that. That has, for the last two years, been changing its uh, scrutiny of the claims and setting up a system to develop reliable claims. And that's where we are now. Nothing stops that as an, order, as an entity from changing its accounting processes, accounting determinations, and even its, its manner of, of accounting. That, that's also within the standards. So that look at the claim. That worked out what the claim should be. And yes, there is an element for, for actuarial valuation, but that element as such wasn't discussed. But it's again, as I said, it's unfortunate. These are the matters that we highlighted up front where the changes were before the audit started, and these were matters that should have been addressed during the audit. But we can, I think, that can quite today quite uh, confidently say that we produced the error rate of claims substantially, the claims that we accounted for reliable, whereas the previous uh, with the actuarial evaluation, it was really distorted the total claim liability. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Um, let's, uh, um, thanks, Chipson. I, I was saying earlier that I like my D2 to go first on the on the process, and I'll come in to deal with the. I think you asked what I remember who did you communicate with. Um, I think I'll, I'll deal with that part because some of the communications were written by um, myself, and, and I'm the one that led some of them into the, the deputy chair of the board. Okay, that's Thank you, Chair, and, and, and thank you, Honorable Members. So, when we, and, and then I think when we did the presentation in the morning, one of the things that we spoke about is the fact that um, we are guided by the, the international standards on, on auditing in terms of how we conduct our audit. Now, those standards then require that we continuously engage um, both with management as well as with those that are charged with governance, and in this case, that would be the audit committee, as well as, as, as the board. Um, our engagement letter, um, which then directs how we, we will conduct the audit, as well as the audit strategy, then we'll go into the final details in terms of how we then uh, plan the audit, the approach to the audit, the timing of the audit, and so forth. Um, and you would see that in our audit strategy document, we would have outlined at key points at what point we then communicate both with the audit committee um, and, and with the executive management, especially as it relates to the finalization of um, the audit process um, and, and, and the process leading to, to the sign up of the audit report. Now, further in our engagement letter, we do then articulate the process that needs to be followed when findings are then issued. So ideally what would happen is that there would be an observation on the ground. Uh, in this case, in the rest, in the rest in instance, there was a change in accounting policy. Um, when this matter is communicated to us, obviously, we then go back um, and assess what would be the impact of this particular change in accounting policy on our audit process and the plan approach that we would have communicated at the beginning of the audit process uh, through our engagement letter and, and our audit strategy. Now, looking at that particular point, um, when we then uh, deal with the, the matter that has been presented to us, there would be then engagements that happen between 
the AG team and management to further understand what prompts the change in accounting points. And I think it's also important at this point that I highlight the fact that when we then look at the change in accounting points, as the Auditor General, we look at it in two aspects. So the first aspect <laughs> is that we check the appropriateness of that change in accounting policy. Um, and in this case, um, I think the SB has uh, quite extensively explained what would then be the process that is undertaken to get to your basis of your change in accounting policy. So we don't only look at the impact of what that has done to, in terms of the changes that happen in the financial statement, but we look at the appropriateness of it. And that is an important factor because that is where APSIS 42 then becomes relevant to say, was APSIS 42 then a relevant basis for the change in accounting policy? I think that's, that, that part is important. Now, to get back to when the observations have been made, there would be the engagements that happen between the audit team and management. Um, and once we've done that, if it is a technical complex accounting matter, in which case this was, um, we would go back to our technical uh, team, and the technical team would then assist us in terms of evaluating this matter and its appropriateness. And that's exactly what we did in this instance uh, before issuing the, the audit binding. Then once we had then done that process, um, we then reduced what was sitting in the technical report in terms of the key arguments and the key positions and the key assumptions uh, as it relates to our conclusion into a, what we call a communication of audit finding. So that is the first draft of, of, of the, if I could call it a finding that management gets to see. In terms of our engagement letter, we then further indicate that management has five days to respond uh, to that uh, to that communication of finding. And in that five days, obviously, management will then go into a process of understanding how we actually got to that assessment. And if there needs to be further discussions, then there will be further discussions of clarity around that audit process. So that is indeed what we did in this, in this case. So we did issue the communication of finding, which was on the basis of the technical report that we obtained to support uh, the conclusions that we reached. Ordinarily, as the AG, we, those those technical opinions form part of the audit evidence of the on the on, on the audit file, um, and that is the body of evidence that will then conclude the audit opinion. It's not things that we normally share out in the public domain, but it just supports the the work that we've done as an office. But I think it's safe to say that it's important to to, to actually emphasize this point to say what was in the technical argument and what said in that communication or finding was exactly the same if one way to put it that way. It was just presented to management maybe in a different form. Once that process is concluded, then there's a process of then uh, compiling our, our findings overall into a management report. Um, and that is ultimately the document that we share our observations with the board as well as the audit committee as well as with management. Um, and from that process, uh, we then compile based on the responses that we receive from management after the five days is lapsed. And as we do that as well, we also evaluate the response that we've been given by management to say, management, we've issued you this communication of binding. Um, you've responded to us. Let's then also respond to how you've responded to us. And that process indeed was also concluded. Um, and, 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 and if we go on further in the process in terms of finalizing the, the process, I think as well we're comfortable that we also follow due process because what would also need to happen is that the management report and the observations that we have on this particular matter 
are then engaged with the audit committee. Um, and, and indeed, that process was then undertaken. Uh, further to that uh, would be the process of then the dispute resolution. That is also articulated in our engagement letter. Um, so once REV, once REV declares a dispute, uh, there is a process that would then be undertaken. And from that process, um, it would then be escalated to uh, the business unit leader, uh, who is not uh, necessarily the signatory on the audit, but oversees the, the business unit under which REV uh, is, is, is audited. If that process is exhausted, in that process, then it gets escalated to the head of portfolio, who looks after the entire portfolio under which the transport uh, sector is, 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 is audited in the ATSA. If that process is also not, um, not um, what's the word, if that process does not uh, get uh, the desired result, satisfactory result, um, then there is a dispute resolution mechanism also that gets undertaken, and that is done through the, the Office of, of the OAG, uh, and it's a joint dispute resolution process. So those are the, the, the things that we've done uh, that have been done through the right. So just like I put it to the CEO, you followed your due process. <laughs> I think that's the issue um, that the committee wants. <clears throat> in, in I, I want to know whether that was completed. The, it was the OAG process was concluded in when? No, no, the thanks, Chair, and all of that. Yes, indeed, that process was completed. I think when Swindia goes into the details, she will articulate that. Um, so at the point when the matter was brought to the AG, obviously there was a process that was undertaken by the OAG's office. There was a communication that was indeed sent out by the OAG's office uh, indicating that they had issued a communication through to that. Um, and that was similarly shared with, uh, with, with access as the AGSA office. And it was only after that process had been completed that we proceeded to, to, to finalize uh, the, the audit process. And maybe just one point that I'd also like to, to cover before I hand over to Stogile is the fact that um, when we were then finalizing the audit process, we did request uh, the support of, of management and the audit committee in terms of setting up engagements that would allow us to discuss the final management report and the final audit report uh, in order for us to be able to, to, to sign off. So I think it's important that we do articulate that point. Um, and, and last, even when we went to the point of tabling the audit report after that process was exhausted, we also wrote to the Minister of, of Transport indicating our intention uh, to finalize this audit process, indicating that if the report is not been tabled by a specific date, uh, then we would then proceed to finalize the order, the, the order process and, and also table. So I think it's just important that I just uh, clarify those particular matters in the manner in which they occur. But I'm going to just going to let you to deal with, uh, with the rest of it. Thank you. Just to say the letters of the AGR are available that are referred to. We'll hand them over. <clears throat> the I and the ACT, they are explained uh, as well, the timeline <clears throat> and the reasons why there has to be a conclusion. So, um, would Ben Stone will assist those letters? Okay. Just, just to repeat, I think Marjorie covered me to, to a large extent, but when the team struggled to then uh, get management to give an engagement, I, I stuck at it because when the Chipperson wrote to 
AG in August, AG asked me to, to deal with the matter, right? So I did write to the chairperson asking that, can you schedule meetings so that we can present the management report and the water report. I um, ended up speaking to the deputy uh, chair who did grant a meeting. So we did have a meeting on the 13th of, 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 of December with the deputy chair. I think the chair was, was part of the meeting by all and the management was there. And then the issue that we wanted to um, to deal with is can you schedule meetings so that we can discuss this management report and audit report, which we had shared with them previously, so that we can close the audit process. Um, the CEO is correct that our office was closing on the 17th. We met on the 13th. The deputy chair asked that we give them up until around the 21st of December to schedule the audit committee in the morning. We agreed. But those meetings were never scheduled. I did follow up with the deputy chair to say, Chair, we had agreed on the 13th that meetings would be scheduled, but we haven't received anything. I think the team was following with the chair of the audit committee as well to say, can we schedule this meeting so that we can finalize? But up until we signed the court meetings, I think the last conversation I had with deputy chair, so the issue that Rep kept on talking about is we want the technical report. But after that meeting on the 13th, the two things that we clarified in the audit committee of August, today, right? There was a document that was tabled where we were clear on how we've considered management's input and, and, how, and what, what, what informs that conclusion. So the audit committee was taken through that. Even after the meeting on the 13th, that documentation was circulated again to Director which I was copied on chain. So in my follow-up, I think they were like close. So the deputy chair said, no, I've spoken to the chair and we will arrange But up until that report was signed, the meetings were not so if, if you, maybe let me close another issue. CEO talks about us not having presented ourselves to the, to the, to the dispute resolution process. And I think the accountant general can talk to us. So we do. The team that Maggie was talking about, the technical team, they engage with the OH. So those engagements happen a number of times. And maybe the CEO had a different expectation in terms of what presenting ourselves is. And, and that's a separate issue. So, so that process we follow check. The key thing for me is that if we rely on the ODT to set up to schedule those meetings so that we can present our documents, if those meetings are not staged, what do you then do? Because you will wait forever in eternity and you'll never finalize your audit after you've been clear on what the issues are. Now, what then happens is that those are now used as a mechanism of, of, of making sure the audit process is never finalized, and that for us was a, was a big issue. And, and I think the OAG spoke about it earlier to say, we have finalized our position, and that's the feedback we got. Yes, we did write to the OAG. If this was raised with the OAG on the 26th of August, we're sitting in December, this process is not finalized. Right? The OAG wrote on the 1st of September, I think so we spoke about it, clearly articulating their views, but then the engagement with that ensued us. So we were saying, can this matter be finalized so that the order process can be closed? In terms of legislation, we were supposed to have signed off that report for the first of July. We're sitting in December, the report is not signed, and we have no idea at what point would that be happy with the position of either the EU or AG, or them to say, can we finalize the process? And, and I think for me, that's the key thing to say, at what point is the process finalized? Is it at the point where I've agreed with your view? Or where I've given you my view and how I've gotten to that? Disagree, but find another way to do it. 
But the point that also remains is that that access 42 was not available for use. So what is it that you expected from your process? Maybe they that if they feel strongly that a current standard is not catering for their need, maybe they should have followed a different mechanism um, in, instead of this process of challenging us when we have the I think here last thing you spoke about us having not given rifle. Talk to me. Oh, sorry. Talk to me. Okay, thanks, Chair. Chair, um, I think the Jefferson said we didn't attend to the NETAC quite any years And I'm not sure what he's talking about because the team had asked for engagement with REF as early as this thing was discussed in the whole committee. And the finding might be talked about was issued in June. If that is not early enough, then what would any have to look like? For, for, for the committee to be happy that we dealt with the time. I'll, I'll pause there, I think, confirming that the process was fully. It differed from other stakeholders in the sense that other stakeholders would have granted us meetings. And in this case, we were not granted meetings. But the correspondence that we wrote to cover that or to close that loop and, and, and us reaching out to the to the chamber was us saying, can you please ensure that black management Helps us with this meeting so that we can close this properly and not never happen. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, ASB, finally, sorry for the long wait. I hope you are <laughs> connected without buffering. But we've got a permanent third reality of ESCO. Yes, indeed. Um, I think they just need to tell us when we will have electricity rather than the other way around. Um, might change uh, the delivery and how people approach it. Um, so, so I've noted a number of questions and I hope I'm going to be able to answer all of them. Um, and I'm going to answer them as constructively as I can to, to enable the committee to make decisions. So I think just, um, firstly, there was an observation that we have taken a long period of time to get to develop a, a standard of gap on social benefits. And I thought it's important just to indicate what our process is. Um, so, so we are required in terms of the PFMA to consider international best practice when we issue our standards of GRAP. Social benefits, as I did indicate, and, and other members have indicated, is really a fundamental liability and expense for government. And we had chosen to wait for the IPSIS-B, which is the international body who we place our reliance on for our standards, to complete their process. <clears throat> the social benefits standard, as you can see, IPSIS-42, was only finalized in 2019. So, again, um, because we had reservations with the standard once it was issued, we needed to understand what we were going to do as a board. So I, I realize that the, the perception is that we have taken a long time to issue a standard. Um, unfortunately, that's been the case internationally because of the complexity, and we are responding to what has happened internationally. And, and it's important that we do consider what happens internationally because, of course, we do want to be competitive in, in international and other markets um, from a public sector perspective when we raise funding, et cetera. So I just thought that that's important for the committee to understand. Um, I think the second thing that I, I wanted to, to respond to, and, and I'm going to do this as, as generically as I can. So the board is a standard setting body. They issue standards of GRAP 
they issue interpretations of the standards, they issue directives, and they issue guidelines. And these all go through a public consultation process. And to the extent that we have issued any of those, the board that is, um, they are authoritative and they have to be applied. The Minister of Finance signs off the standards and all the other documents are, are really supplementing the application of the standards. I've heard reference today to directives a number of times, and I don't know if that is in reference to the directives that the board has issued or if it is communication that we have issued, either as the CEO or as the technical director, which really explains and enhances the board's decisions in the market. So I think there's a distinction between those two. So if we are talking about directives like Directive 5, which deals with the GRAP reporting framework, it is 100% authoritative. Obviously, communication that we issue as the secretariat of the ASB is, is explaining the decisions of the board. So it's communication rather than an instruction or, or anything else. Uh, and it's not a directive in and of itself. It's explaining the board's decisions. So if you if you ask whether Director 5 is mandatory, absolutely yes. We prescribe uh, and describe exactly what should be applied in a particular period. We obviously don't indicate there what should not be applied. I think there was some reference to, and again, I use the word directive in, in inverted commas, that was issued in September by us. It was a communication, actually, that we had drafted as the staff to explain some of the board's decisions at the September board meeting. At that particular board meeting, the board had decided that it would depart from IPSIS 42 in developing its own standard, which meant that IPSIS 42 was going to be um, not suitable for application in the local market. We had made, or the board had made a very good <laughs> go in another direction. That communication was shared with the National Treasury. We utilize their communication um, methodologies um, or, or methods or mechanisms or whatever you want to call them to distribute these letters on our behalf. We also send them to, we have a group of people called our Public Sector Accounting Forum. Um, there are a number of public entities that do serve on that committee. Um, I think um, most of the ones that are in question in terms of social benefits would also serve on that particular committee. And we did issue that communication in September to them as well. And obviously, we do share the same thing with professional bodies and others. So it was not a, a specific letter that was directed at anyone. It was general communication. And you would appreciate that there are a number of international standards that would be of relevance to other entities. Um, and, and it's important for us to explain the position about all of those international standards and why they are or are not included in, in our GRAP reporting framework in Directive 5, so that entities don't waste time doing things. Um, I mean, to, to be honest, I think we get the question about applying the international standard on leases quite frequently, to the extent that, you know, service providers want to provide these services to entities when they are actually not warranted and you shouldn't be applying the standard. So it's really a general communication to be helpful to entities. Um, I, I think the other thing that I want to touch on is that I did mention at the end of my presentation that this is an evolutionary process for us. 
We started the project in April 2021. We are now in September 2022. There are a number of decisions that have been made along the way about where to retain or depart from, from EPSIS 42. Um, we have been deliberating, apart from the fact that we had issues about the recognition point, the past event that's been spoken about for liabilities, we have also been considering what is a social insurer in the public sector in South Africa. This was also a huge question in our comment letter to the EPSIS B, um, expressed not just by us, but other standard setters, a lot of it is based on, on economic interpretation, and we have been engaging extensively with the National Treasury and the Reserve Bank and others to get to a good understanding of what social insurance is and how it would be applied in the South African market. I, I think two things to, to point out is that social um, insurance is very broad. It includes, as I said, things that get paid as part of a pension fund, if you do have a state pension fund, and it includes any other benefits in cash or in kind. Um, when we talk about insurance, it doesn't necessarily need to be insurance, as I said, in the sense that it's it's sort of like you call up insurance and, and, and this is the um, you know, sort of type of type of insurance that you are exploring. So it is very broad. But I think there are specific criteria that we are looking to define in our standard of grab of when you would be a social insurer or not. And I think that's something that, that we have been debating quite a bit. And I think that is why in our communication um, to the road accident fund in, in August of last year, it was a question that we had raised about, um, you know, where you see yourself in terms of, of the social benefit spectrum. I think just to note, I think I did mention this in my presentation as well, just because you have the name insurance in your title as an entity doesn't make you an insurer or not. What we look at is the substance of the individual transactions or groups of transactions and whether or not there are insurance and insurance like. So insurance like is, is there risk and reward? So you would know if you call up insurance, I want to insure my car. And they would say, yes, how much and how much are you willing to pay? You agree in excess, you do all of those things. So if you are able to adjust what you get for the risk that you take on and vice versa, that's kind of what we are talking about. But it is also something that you need to assess on an individual basis rather than on an entity basis. Um, I, I think the other thing that I just want to touch on is um, in terms of, of management's judgment. I think this is a, is a pertinent question that has been raised by, by various members. So as professional accountants that, that prepare the financial statements, that's really the thing that differentiates us from, from others is really the fact that we are well trained to understand the accounting standards, as well as the information that we have available to be able to make a determination of what should be in the financial statements or not. That being said, there are criteria that need to be followed within the standards of GRAP. So judgment needs to be made, bearing in mind that who do we pre prepare the financial statements for? Again, the user group, and, and, and I omitted Parliament uh, and the legislatures and the councils. You are really the representatives of the service providers and, and um, the, the, sorry, the service recipients and the resource providers. But when we think about judgment, it has to be with the users in mind. And the criteria that we have outlined in the standards by which you need to curtail your judgment is whether or not that information is relevant to the economic decisions of users and whether or not it is reliably 
um, presented in the financial statements such that it faithfully represents the financial position. So, so the assets and liabilities, the, the surplus or deficit, the revenue expenditure and cash flows. It must represent the economic substance of the transactions. And importantly, those assessments must be neutral and they must be prudent. Of course, they must also be material, complete in all respects. But I think if you are talking about judgment, it is within those specifics, that specific right. set of criteria that you, you need to adhere to. So, so I think I, I, I have touched on a number of points and I'm happy to answer any other questions if I may have missed them. I've just been making a couple of notes as, as we've been going along. But I, but I, I really think we just want to be as constructive as possible to, to assist, um, Scopa and obviously it's making its decisions. Thank you very much. I think substantively the issue was around um, Directive 5 and the explanatory notes and so on. That helps and assists us. We will look at the other issues that um, you have raised. So thank you very much, ASP. Uh, OAG, yeah, these acronyms um, <laughs> Right. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chair. I'll be brief. Um, just to confirm that, um, as the AG mentioned, we did conclude our processes. I don't have the exact dates with me here, but I'm sure um, those are the dates that the AG mentioned. Um, we had a very long um, process, and although we did, as the CEO and CFO mentioned, did come up with some um, solutions moving forward, towards perhaps looking at the dates. I think that was more for a process for, for the future because my office also, as you know, need to table the consolidated financial statements and in my other role, I was putting pressure on the AG to conclude all, all audits for all departments and entities. And, you know, you can only give so much time beyond 31 July. I think there comes a point where we all agree that we, we perhaps should leave these issues for the, the next year. Um, and then hence we also then agree to conclude with this audit. Thank you, Jay. All right, thank you much, Deputy Minister. Thank you very much, Chairperson, Honourable Members as well. Okay. Maybe let me start by apologizing for arriving after the start okay. of the meeting. I did submit an apology. Uh, I requested my office to submit one because I was flying from Delhi in the morning because I could not fly last night. And the only flight that leaves Durban to Cape Town is at quarter past seven. Durban nights like myself, I understand the challenge of flights. So, Shola Mugman, you must have spoken. Yes. No, no, no. The, the, the Department of Transport must help us in this regard. Yes, I experienced it. My apologies for that. Chairperson, um, we, we have listened carefully uh, <laughs> to all the presentations, all concerns and, and questions from different institutions and stakeholders. Um, we've also taken note that you have not engaged us on the content of the Auditor General's report and opinion. We've taken note of that. We are requesting, Chair, that we look at this matter, uh, particularly 
as I've indicated after listening to the presentations and come back to SCOPA and we can agree on the time frame for that. And I'm saying this because a matter of this nature will definitely require the minister's uh, uh, articulation. So having been here and having listened and with the presentations that have taken place here and the concerns, questions and everything, I think it would be prudent that we sit down together with the minister and then we write back to the, to the committee on our position and way forward. I think that would be that from ourselves. Thank you very much. Uh, Honourable, one minute, one minute, we will give a summary. This matter has been dragging for quite some time. The question to the executive authority, what role did they play and what advice have they given the entity in relation to this matter? That's the only voice that is missing. Do they subscribe or share the sentiment of taking this matter to court or not? And if so, why? Thank you, Chair. Okay, Honorable Swartz. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Chair, I know that we have had presentations and questions, but uh, you surprised us uh, along the way. My Chair would be just... Um, to get to know that if ARF could give us just a figure as to how much they've paid or are paying so far to take the AG to court, because the court process is also taxpayers' money, um, just so that we have an idea how much they've paid so far in court fees. Thank you, Chair. Quick responses to those, but their questions are quite simple. Just note them. Honorable, Honorable Tolashe. All one, Chair. I'm not a court of law. However, I want to ask and put it to the board. The court implication are they prepared to take some responsibility on the outcome of court as far as military process is concerned? I just want to hear that question, mm -hmm. Okay. Personal liability and responsibility, Honorable Sonia. My first point has been taken by Honorable uh, Tolan. There was not in a form uh, that uh, uh, directly, uh, I appreciate what the Deputy Minister says, um, that they would have to have a reconsideration of the matters after uh, this uh, deliberation, which I really uh, want to appreciate. And secondly, uh, the point that you see this board and the CEO, they must not abuse the minister's assertion. The minister was correct in saying Graf has been uh, carrying such liabilities over time. He did not translate that into the actual change of, uh, uh, you know, hiding uh, the liabilities. Was saying, deal with the liabilities. And in dealing with the liabilities is to, uh, in the in the words of the deputy chair, pay what is due uh, to those which you owe as an 
not to derive from an accounting standard. Something which we have seen has driven a number of companies uh, into liquidation because they relied on such kind of practice. It's not useful. Uh, you see, the minister's directive, uh, one assumes when the effect that these things, setting them, having remained in your books over time, find way of dealing with them appropriately, not inappropriately. It might have been, uh, because it's a matter of policy as well, that the portfolio committee of transport, I think there was a number was, was here, probably on this matter, they ought to have some kind of uh, some uh, point of effect that uh, the fairness, the uh, actual determination and arrival into this kind of change. We have been clear. The Office of the Accountant General stipulates how you have to arrive into a change. The, the ISB determines in the same lines. And you come and do it differently. With no ministerial determination on those, there's a clarity on what you have to do to carry out in terms of your accountability uh, in as far as the financials are concerned. The auditor general ought to get into another uh, round of audits. Uh, you must sit with the with your, your audit board over time in terms of law. In terms of law, the Public Audit Act says irrespective. The, the auditor general must table his or her report uh, to the legislature concerned. They've done so in terms of law, which is fine, it's correct. If you would have wanted to delay the process, the law covers them. The Public Audit Act covers them quite appropriately. So, so this fact of saying there's no report, in terms of law, there is a report. The auditor general has tabled that report. The unfortunate part is that you have reneged in terms of your annual report. You don't have your annual report, though the auditor general has submitted uh, their own uh, in terms of their own audit. This thing of arrogance is not going to help us. The stage is going down because of the arrogance, the attitude that is carried by our own administrators and the failure by the boards to make them accountable. We can't be party to that as parliament. We must be emphatic on the point that uh, while the deputy minister has asked this committee to hold for the ministry to deal with this matter, which we, as well, I highly appreciate uh, that uh, indeed let us give the minister, uh, the minister time to deal with this, probably uh, 14 days uh, space for them to uh, have time to deal with it and come back to us. It's only fair uh, for them to do so. Thank you very much, Chair. Honorable Mentor will be the last one. And then there was quick questions and quick responses. Then I'll conclude on the way forward. Sister and better colleagues. Yeah, good evening, Chair. Chairperson, just to start where Honorable Somio left off, I think seven days will be enough for the minister to deal with the matters. Now, currently in the country, there is no other law, neither a policy 
that places the responsibility and or obligation of compensating those that are affected or become victims of accidents other than the RAF. And therefore, that means that that becomes a liability. You can't term it anyway. Now, to seek to put those figures away or wish them away is not changing accounting uh, tools of, uh, of, of RAF. Neither is going to make the Auditor General to compromise the system. Because why? We, we are in a country where we utilize public funds. And public funds must be accounted for. So if you want to now say that is not a liability, I'm interested in knowing what then becomes a new tech and what then becomes an accounting tool for that and how is it audited? Can the current laws, the PAA, the PFMA, which gives authority to the ASB to help us in formulating accounting standards, what then becomes a mechanism to look into how you as a management innovation in trying to deal with how you deal with the matter of your liability. Your innovation is your innovation. No one will stand in front of you for doing that. But at the very same time, it has to go hand in hand with what is applicable and that can be utilized by the other institutions which are working with you. If you have a standard, that standard must be compatible to the standards of the Auditor General. Must be a standard recognized at Treasury. It must be recognized in terms of the PFMA. It must be recognized in terms of ASP. Now, if it's not being recognized, how are we going to audit it? But the more, most important thing here, CEO, is that we can't wish a responsibility away. That responsibility, you are going to foot that bill with public funds. And those public funds must be public. They can't be zero. Hence, AG says, if you utilize this particular tool, it means you are taking the liability away. And therefore, all of us in the country, we are not aware of where you stand in terms of liabilities. And we can't then say one day, you are in the green when you were in the red. It's not accidents to happen, Deputy Ministers. It's the accidents that have been recorded. And therefore, what is recorded and what is the debt of wrath to the people of South Africa is a liability. Do we have any other term for that? No, we don't. And that's where these disagreements are. Therefore, I will appreciate your intervention in making sure that Besides having a standard that is not recognized, that, does, that compromises the systems of accountability in the country, there is an understanding of what is a liability. When you were saying deal with the liability, what did you actually mean? You were not wishing it away. But that liability, it becomes, it's their obligation. There's nothing else that they can do. Thank you. Right. Quick responses to those questions that were asked. Um, which was finances and 
was true that need answers now. I'm persuaded to, to reconcile and, and, and withdraw my question in line with what Honorable Soma has requested, seconded by Honorable Nantekwe. Let's afford the minister uh, seven days. And I want to stress, Chair, that there has to be consequence management for those that have deliberately and arrogantly resorted into adopting, if indeed uh, as such has been proven to be uh, a fruitless and wasteful expenditure. Someone has to account. Okay. And when that day comes, Chair will be here patiently waiting for that accountability. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's do this. Is the issue of costs. Can it come in writing so that it, it's just comprehensive? So as opposed to yeah. All right. <clears throat> Let me conclude by uh, thanking the chairperson of the board of RAF and the board members and the executives, uh, AG, uh, ASB, OAG, who have actively participated in today's uh, meeting uh, to clarify matters for the committee to make a determination. Of the SIU, um, as always, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your presence uh, here. Deputy Minister, we would want to appreciate uh, your presence and say on behalf of the people of Kwasi Natal, I'm glad you went through what you went through insofar as uh, having flight difficulties because it is the head of us. Hopefully, the department and other stakeholders will look at it for the rest of us. We'll conclude by saying, as things stand now, as a committee, we do not agree with the change of accounting standards and therefore we disagree with the court action. And we noted that the audit report of the age as things stand has got forced an effect. And the committee reserves its rights pending the ongoing consultation and receiving information. And we'll make a determination on a committee report to the House as a matter of priority, which will, amongst others, include deferring some of these issues to the SCOEG to avoid this committee being a player in the referee. Uh, on it, and I think that holistically must be looked at there and consider the role that the portfolio committee on the portfolio committee on transport must play. The SIU must continue with any work that it is doing in the space of RAF to investigate and bring some of these matters to a logical legal conclusion towards successful prosecution. Um, let's give the minister, as uh, the DM has said, uh, 10 days. So that's a fair compromise, 14 and 10. <laughs> All right. Uh, so 10 days, uh, Deputy Minister, to get the position of the, the, the ministry on this, because the decision seemed to be triggered by something that came from the ministry. However it was said, however it was done, the interpretation of that resulted in this. 
So we will get that. So I, I was of the view that we will meet next week to finalize a short report for the House because we've got a next week Wednesday vacant. But I think let's allow the process, uh, give them 10 days, and then we come back. This will be the first matter on the agenda, or if we get special permission, we can meet in the recess and finalize it, given it's So this is item number one. Um, when, when we come back. Ultimately, send for Nova's item. I'll think, I'll think about it. <laughs> Let me conclude by saying it is not desirable to have the institutions of state unable to find each other to the extent to which courts must resolve matters of policy. Because the precedents that it says for the greater state machinery are very dangerous. In that courts will ultimately become players and referees in policy making. Because this court action will simply let the court, in one way or the other, having to make a policy decision. It's wrong. It's wrong. And the ref must accept, as far as I'm concerned, that audit outcomes will result if things are not right in a disclaimer. It's part of the process. Let's not try and circumvent it with creative creativity. Would where we don't like it. Just we, I can assure you, we are we are not convinced. We're not convinced. I think the ref really has not convinced us. But we'll give you the benefit of the doubt with the ministerial intervention that the DM is asked to provide heightened information and uh, explanations on this. My only conclusion is that South Africans rely on a functional ref. If the events of the past few days are anything to go by, if you look at what happened in Okomolo, really, 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 there has to be speed, efficiency, and agility in REF's operations to respond to what happens on our roads. To be settled and wrangled in court action, I, again, so a message to have shape up or shape out. Be equal to the task and responsibility of the public responsibility that you own. And the times accept that things will not go your way. So we'll await that report from the minister, which will get in 10 days as well as colleagues. We'll circulate it. Let's prep an interim report for the house and then consider what. Uh, so that we can formally refer some of these matters. Uh, and as I'm saying, the audit report as things stand now in terms of parliament has got force and effect. So thank you very much. We wish you safe traveling messages. The committee will be in constant communication as and when the need arises. Colleagues, tomorrow we have a very brief meeting. Uh, the minister is not available, but a report has come through from public works and infrastructure. 
on the reports that you want, judging by the presentation, it should be very brief. So this meets tomorrow, 9.30, virtual platform. Right, the meeting is done, the chat, thanks colleagues.